the court, la cour. Morning, please be seated. In the case of the Attorney General for Ontario against Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario et al. For the appellant, Attorney General of Ontario, Judy Im, Nadia Laik, and Jennifer Boychuk. For the intervener, Attorney General of British Columbia, Tyra Callen. Tamara Sanders, Lely Antinuk. For the intervener, Attorney General of Alberta, Sean McDonough, Melissa Burkett. For the respondent, Canadian Broadcasting Corporation, Justin Safaini, Spencer Bass, and Dustin Milligan. For the respondent, Information and Privacy Commissioner of Ontario, William S. Charles and Linda Chen. For the interveners, Canadian Civil Liberty Association, Iris Fisher and Gregory Shepard. For the intervener, BC Freedom of Information and Privacy Association, Sean Hearn Casey and Benjamin Isid. For the interveners, Center for Free Expression et al., Jessica Orkin and Adriel Weaver. Please note that there is a sealing order in this matter pursuant to an order from the Court of Appeal. Now, before we begin, I would like to provide a specific directive or guidance aimed at the Information and Privacy Commissioner's submissions in this matter. Following this Court's guidance from the case of Ontario Energy Board versus Ontario Power Generation, Inc., released in 2015, and given the nature of the function performed by the Commissioner, and given that this is a judicial review of the Commissioner's own decision, given the presence of a capable respondent party in the person of the CBC, and in order not to compromise the Commissioner's impartiality, the Court directs counsel for the Commissioner to limit their submissions at the hearing to arguments relating to the standard of review. Judy Im. Good morning, Chief Justice and Justices. This case is of significance for Ontario as it is the first time this Honourable Court will be considering the scope of the Cabinet Records exemption under Section 12.1 of Ontario's Freedom of Information and Protection of Privacy Act, what we will be referring to as FIPA or the Act. Section 12.1 exempts from disclosure records that, quote, would reveal the substance of deliberations of Cabinet. It is the interpretation of this phrase substance of deliberations that is at issue on this appeal. This phrase is found in 12 out of 15 provinces, territories, and federal government's cabinet records exemptions in their respective access 
to information acts. It is a phrase of significance to decision makers whose deliberations are protected by a zone of privacy created through statute or common law, or in the case of cabinet governments, constitutional convention. In this case, the former Information and Privacy Commissioner, or IPC, ordered the disclosure of 23 confidential letters written by Premier Ford for each of his cabinet ministers soon after the 2018 election. The letters were placed on a cabinet agenda and distributed at a cabinet meeting. It is Ontario's position that the letters are plainly records that would reveal the substance of deliberations of the Premier and Cabinet and hence exempted under the FIPA. Okay, may I stop you there and just ask for a clarification of, of the argument that you're putting forward. Are you putting forward an argument under Section 12.1? Yes, we are. 12.1a as well? CBC seems to say that you're, you're now shifting your argument to 12.1a. Is that, do you include so We're not that? relying on 12.1a as an exemption. We're relying on 12, the opening words in 12.1. But our position is that the interpretation of the phrase substance of deliberations requires a harmonious reading of all of the subsections, including a. But right. we're not but relying on it. You just referred to it as a record, right? So I'm, I'm wondering about your relationship with 12.1a. So we're not relying on it as an exemption, but we are relying on it as, as a relevant text and context for the interpretive exercise of interpreting the substance of deliberations. Thank you, I understand. Hey, Sam, I, I, is it your position that Section 12.1 really just codifies the common law? So really, we are uh, dealing with the question of statutory interpretation, but it doesn't narrow the scope of cabinet privilege at common law. And really, what it does is codify the privilege, which presumably is why you've referred to the other provinces as well. So is that, that's, is that your position? I think it is the intention of the legislature, which is reflected in the terms of the act, that indeed the, the um, cabinet confidentiality in the common law was top of mind when they were drafting the provision. Well, top of mind, but did it derogate in any way? And is it a narrower test than the common law test? Because it seems to me that your position is that it's the I may have it wrong, but it, it seems to me that you're saying it's the common law that we look to, mm -hmm. to, you know, give meaning to the Constitutional Convention of Cabinet Secrecy. We're, we're not, um, we're not, our position is that it indeed is not a narrower test. Thank you. Thank you. So, this IPC disagreed with our position, and that is the true heart of what brings us here before you, because the IPC found that outcomes or products of deliberations would not reveal their substance. Now, I'm going to tell you why the decision was unreasonable. Miss, uh, uh, before you uh, tell us why the decision is unreasonable, uh, it seems that you changed your position regarding the standard of review between the beginning of the file and now. Did you abandon the correctness uh, standard of review argument? So at the divisional court, um, Justice Cote, we did in the alternative argue that the standard was correctness. So in, and we didn't pursue that alternative argument at the court of appeal. And we're not pursuing that here. The standard of review, and I believe it's not an issue between the parties, is reasonableness. But you agree that we are not bound by the position of the parties on standard of review? I agree with that. 
Thank you. Well, it, it seems to me it's an important issue because Agrera says that the proper identification of the standard of review, that issue is reviewable for correctness, and that's not changed by Vavilov. So it seems to me uh, not only is it a concession, it's not a, con you know, even if it's a concession, we're not bound by it because it's a, it's a question of law, but in terms of providing guidance, it seems to me that the court should identify correctly what is the appropriate standard of review. So what do you say is the correct standard of review in this case? Well, we've taken the position in our, in our FACTA, and, I, and I'm not going to and, and that's the position that we'll take, is that it is a reasonableness review. And I believe that we've taken the position that a reasonableness review that's robust in respect of statutory interpretation and guided by the principles in Vavilov is what um, is applicable in this case. I think my friends disagree as to um, the kind of review that would be done for statutory interpretation under, under so the reasonableness given, standard. Given that you've said, though, that the case... Uh uh, the statute codifies the common law. We're dealing with a question not just of statutory interpretation, but the separation of powers. So that seems to me to give this case an important constitutional dimension. Uh, and in terms of maintaining the equilibrium between the three branches of government and giving cabinet the zone of privacy it needs to discharge its constitutional role. Justice Lau has alluded to that and called it a conundrum. So that seems to me as being an important aspect of the case. The other aspect of the case is that uh, Vavilov cited the University of Calgary case and, uh, on solicitor-client privilege as being an appropriate rule of law exception uh, on a, for a fundamental question of law of central importance to the legal system. And here we're dealing with cabinet privilege, which has many analogues, it seems to me. So I'm trying to wonder, you've said it's reasonableness and that's what you've put, but we're asking what is the correct test? And it seems to me that when I look at Justice Lauer's decision and when I look at the question as being one of the separation of powers and the scope of privilege, similar to solicitor-client privilege, that that leads me to the conclusion, and I'd like your views on this, that the correct standard of review is probably correctness. So the position that we take is that a robust standard of review as mandated by Vavala, particularly on questions of statutory interpretation and involving important issues such as cabinet confidentiality, um, is a sufficient standard um, for, on the facts of this case. I ask you this then, <clears throat> whether it's reasonableness or correctness. Um, am I correct in, in my review of the IPC commissioner's order here, the um, that the cabinet, the importance of cabinet privilege, the uh, importance of cabinet privilege as a constitutional convention that underpins our Westminster system of democracy is not meaningfully engaged with at all. I mean, I saw it as summarizing the AGO's uh, submissions, but did I miss something? I, I couldn't find it anywhere in the analysis. Um, in his decision, you don't see it. I agree with you. It's not. It's not there. There is very little, um, and 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 I will be talking about it um, under so the purpose I, section. So I guess I come to this: Do we really need to engage with whether it's illustrative or exhaustive, uh, or whether it's um, aquasure? Do we actually have to engage with those kinds of? specific questions. Is it outcomes or deliberation? Or is it, 
all of those individual aspects that you go through in such detail in your factum if in fact there's no meaningful engagement with the entire purpose of carving out an exemption for something as fundamental as cabinet privilege the the errors that the errors that we we go through in our factum and that I'm here to make submissions before you on I believe are also indications of the unreasonableness of the decision um, and his failure to read the statute in its full text context and purpose one of which you have um, spoken about um, so I, I must sorry. say I would go so far as to say that um, I almost felt like I was catapulted back and reading Thomas Aquinas when I, was, when I was reading the IPC reasons. There was a scholasticism, it's almost a medieval scholasticism that was brought to bear in terms of the analysis, which seemed to me the absolute antithesis of a purposive approach. But that's just a preliminary thought. Well, we are, um, you'll be hearing submissions from me in one part, and I can turn to them now about his failure to um, consider the purpose of the of the exemption um, um, so but before I do that maybe I'll just give you a roadmap of my submissions and my friends submissions um, so I'm gonna be telling you why the decision was unreasonable and it was a fatal flaw to disregard relevant text context and purpose my co-counsel, Ms. Lake, is going to tell you that requiring evidence from a cabinet minister in violation of their oath of secrecy was absurd. But what it really comes down to in plain language is that it just cannot be that outcomes of cabinet deliberations are not protected by the cabinet records exemption. How can the final option, out of all other options deliberated on, not reveal the substance of those deliberations? How can the product of every single interim deliberation and decision point in the development of a final government policy not be protected? What was the legislature thinking when it was trying to create a zone of privacy for the deliberations of and support of an effective and efficient cabinet government? Surely, respectfully, it was not that. So I'm going to be making my submissions as to the unreasonableness of the decision in three parts. Part A, that it was unreasonable for the IPC to find that the Premier's outcomes were not protected. Part A, that it was unreasonable for the IPC to interpret the purpose of the exemption narrowly. And Part C, that it was unreasonable for the IPC to rely upon local body confidence um, exemption cases. So turning to um, Part A. So in Part A, we're going to be taking two positions. One, that it was unreasonable for the IPC to hold that outcomes of deliberations would not reveal their substance. And two, that it was a fatal error and unreasonable for the IPC to ignore Section 12.1a when interpreting the opening words. And no reasonable justification is provided for doing so. Before I move on to our two positions, because there seems to be some um, dispute about it in uh, my friend's facta, I wanted to make it very clear that the IPC's entire decision is premised around his finding that outcomes of deliberations would not reveal their substance, 
as well as his finding that the policy initiatives contained in the letters were the outcomes of the Premier's deliberations, although clearly not final government policies, and therefore were not protected from disclosure by the opening words. Yeah. Just, just on this point, mm -hmm. the way in which the IPC approached cabinet deliberations, it seems to me was to say that it's no more than the exchanges across the cabinet table. What goes in and what comes out, they're not deliberations. It's only when the Premier says, I recognize the Minister of Finance, I recognize the Minister of Transport. And maybe the Minister of Transport and the Minister of Finance disagree with one another. It happens, right? That's, that's why we have a discussion in cabinet. That's it. That's the whole universe, it seems to me, in the IPC view. And, and it's a very, very narrow notion of cabinet confidence. I, I agree with you, Justice Rowe, and even more narrower than, than the exchange of op opinions. He, he, he seems to say that you actually have to have all of cabinet addressing the issue or speaking or exchanging ideas in order for cabinet confidentiality. Um, to, to, uh, to apply. Um, the zone of privacy in our respectful submission that he um, postulates for is extremely narrow and very, very small. Um, and I, 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 Justice Lauer has talked about it, reducing um, the, the, uh, the, imp the importance of cabinet confidentiality to some small derivative um, examination of the bowels of what's going on um, in, in, in the cabinet room. Um, so we've included in our, um, if it's an issue, we've included in our cabinet, uh, in our condensed book, repeated indications um, in the decision where uh, the IPC found that uh, outcomes were not um, exempted um, from disclosure. And that's found in tab two of our condensed book, but I won't, I won't go to them. So our first point um, with respect to the unreasonableness of the decision is that a plain reading of Section 12.1 shows that the legislature chose to protect records that would reveal the substance of deliberations in respect of cabinet policy development and decision-making both in and out of formal cabinet meetings and throughout the beginning, middle, and end of the cabinet's decision-making process. And if, if we can, I can take you to um, tab uh, seven of our condensed book, which is where section 12 is set out on page 81 of the condensed book. So what you see in section 12.1 are um, explicit exemptions of records prepared to brief a minister or are the subject of consultation among ministers that sub E to records prepared for submitted to ministers containing policy options or recommendations that sub B, to records reflecting or used for communication and consultations between ministers that sub E, and then finally to draft legislation or regulation that sub F, and sorry, one more, uh, the most important one, <laughs> sub A, an agenda minute or other record of deliberation or decisions of cabinet. 
Our second point is that the legislature's intent to preserve Cabinet's right to control the public disclosure of its final policies and decisions is seen in various provisions throughout the Act, and I'm going to take you to three of them. The first is Section 18.1G, and again, that's also found on the same page of Tab 7, that's page 81. Now, that exempts from disclosure uh, proposed policies of an institution where it can result in the premature disclosure of a pending policy decision. We submit that it would be inconsistent to protect policy decisions from disclosure after the decision has been made but bef and before it's been publicly announced, but not earlier when it's undergoing the policy development and decision-making process in Cabinet. It is also consistent with the purpose of the exemption in the Act, which I will be discussing more later. So the second provision that I want to turn to um, you to, which is also found on page 81, is section 12.1c. This creates a carve-out from the exemption for background explanations or analyses of problems submitted or prepared for submission to Cabinet for their consideration in making a decision, but only after the decisions are made and implemented. Otherwise, they are exempt from disclosure until Cabinet has exercised its right to control the public disclosure of its final policies and decisions. And of course, the third provision is Section 12.1a, which excludes from disclosure an agenda minute and other record of deliberations or decisions of Cabinet. As argued by Cabinet Office before the IPC, it is a clear indication by the legislature that records of decisions of cabinet would reveal the substance of its deliberations and accordingly would be protected from disclosure. Which takes us to our third point, that outcomes of deliberations will necessarily reveal the internal evolution of the policies ultimately adopted and should be protected. This court in John Doe versus Ministry of Finance, which you we'll find in tab uh, 43 of our condensed book at paragraph 44, but I won't take you to that now. Um, explain the importance of protecting the confidentiality of government policy development by public servants, which is, the, which is governed by section 13 of the Act, and that's the companion provision to section 12. This court described the intolerable burden to force ministers and their advisors to disclose to public scrutiny the internal evolution of policies ultimately adopted. And the, this court described that internal evolution as thus, including false starts, blind alleys, wrong turns, changes of mind, the solicitation and rejection of advice, the reevaluation of priorities, and the reweighing of the relative importance of fact as the problem is studied more closely. You see, I wonder whether yes. there may be another way of looking at this, and that is that uh, the, the statute talks about the substance of deliberations, not the outcome of deliberations. And uh, it goes back to what uh, Cabinet Office submitted to the IPC, which is this metaphor of a continuum of communication, which is obviously the language that's used in describing solicitor-client privilege. And solicitor-client privilege, of course, applies to the preliminary steps for the seeking of advice. It doesn't just apply to the substance of the advice. The preliminary steps are privileged, whether or not it actually reveals the outcome of the actual advice. So I, I guess similar to cabinet privilege and your idea of a continuum of communication, it seems to me that something that reveals the outcome of deliberations may be sufficient to establish that uh, cabinet privilege is engaged, but it's not by any means necessary. The input 
may or may not reveal the outcome of deliberation. It may be possible to establish this chain that you've uh, spoken about. But whether it does or not, if it's part of the continuum and it's an input, that seems to me to be sufficient. And we don't need to get into this intrusive uh, review of is there an affidavit from a cabinet minister? Are they questioned? What was the decision? It's just a simple question of is this an input? And I guess my second question is, the way you've analyzed this already reveals to me the importance of the standard of review, because if it is correctness, the starting point really is the common law and the, the uh, function of cabinet deliberations rather than getting into a sort of a minute examination of the other branches of section 12. Um, so anyway, those are my two questions. One is, um, is there another way of looking at this? And then secondly, doesn't the whole way we look at this change with the standard of review? So there is another way of looking at it because we also, we take the position that clearly these are not final policies. And the, it, the, even though the um, IPC characterized the policy priorities as in the letters, as outcomes of the premier's deliberations, clearly the letters contained more than that. And the nature of the letters is that this kickstarts as you know, cabinet offices, consistent with cabinet offices submissions before the IPC, it kickstarts the entire cabinet policy development process. These are important and high level policy documents for cabinet, which they will be referring back to. It's the template that they will be referring back to over and over again as they continue the um, policy development continuum. So similar to um, the solicitor-client privilege example that you brought, it is our position that the nature of these letters as initiating policy documents, as framing the uh, deliberations going forward, are um, indeed would reveal this, would meet the test under, under, under the Act. Um, in respect of, of your second question about the standard of review um, and how that affects um, the analysis, um, we, we, the robust review that we um, 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 put forward for questions of statutory interpretation, especially this question of statutory interpretation, we believe is a sufficient framework um, for reviewing um, this decision. But here, when you say a robust uh, review, but your friends on the other side, what they say is that the dissenting judge, uh, he did essentially maybe a too robust review, which is a correctness review. This is what they say. Yes, I think that, uh, so, I think that Vavilov talks about questions of statutory interpretation. And of course, there's that phrase, which I'm sure many people have said and brought forward to this court, where the expectation on questions of statutory interpretation is that the principles of modern interpretation be applied, whether it be the courts or statutory decision makers. Um, and I think that is an issue, um, a live issue. I mean, we're still waiting for the decision on Mason, um, on how much on questions of statutory interpretation, how much of that interpretation um, the reviewing court can do and how in-depth they, they can do it. Um, it's our position that the principles of statutory interpretation have to be adhered to by um, the statutory decision maker. Um, and then it, it's the role of the reviewing court to ensure that 
that they've done that. So if you want to call it robust review, um, or if you want to call it um, um, reasonable review, uh, that we believe that, um, that that framework set out in Vavilov for questions of statutory interpretation um, is indeed robust um, and, and sufficient for our purposes. So what I'm going to do, I think, is go directly to part um, to part B, um, which is our position that it was unreasonable for the IPC to interpret the purpose of the exemption narrowly. May, may I ask you a question before you get there? And you may want to postpone my question, but. Um, you seem to suggest that the IPC has introduced a new legal test, a balancing test. And uh, your friends opposite take the position that no, they were just discussing either cases or making factual findings. Do you need, does your case really turn on whether the IPC has or has not articulated a new legal test of balancing? Uh, no, and, and, and to be quite candid, I regret using the word test <laughs> when describing what it was uh, um, that the IPC did. Um, because what it was that he did, and, and I'll be getting to this a, a bit further, is that he, in, 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 in drawing the line and in doing the balance, he didn't give due regard to the statutory purpose or um, the words of the provision um, and, and, and drew that line more narrowly. So that's what we say is the improper balancing that he did. He also inserted a balancing um, which the um, which uh, this court in John Doe talked about how if you look at the entire act, there is a provision, which I'll get into, which the legislature inserted, which is section 23 of the act, which is where the balancing takes place. Um, he didn't consider section 23 or the fact that the cabinet records exemption is excluded um, from, um, from the applicability of Section 23. Um, and, I'll, and I'll explain that in a bit more detail. That was very high level. Um, so to achieve a reasonable interpretation of a legislative text, statutory interpreters must identify accurately and take into account the purpose of the legislation. Its identification is crucial because it will be used as a standard against which the entire purpose of interpretation is, uh, analysis is, is conducted. Um, Ruth Sullivan um, describes this analysis, uh, purpose of analysis, as a staple of modern interpretation. Um, in cases such as this one, um, where the legislative objectives are seemingly at odds, the right of access versus the right of cabinet confidentiality, a very careful reading of the act is required um, with consideration of words of restriction, qualification, and exemption um, um, that may limit the reach of its, the act's main goals. Because it is the words of the legislature that have particular import in drawing that line or finding that balance. Um, as cautioned by Sarah Blake in her textbook, Administrative Law in Canada, excerpts of which are found at tab uh, 19 in uh, the condensed book. While statutory purposes and practical realities may be considered in a purpose of analysis, it's the specific pr purpose 
of a section that should prevail, especially when they're enacted to address competing purposes or to impose limits. Now, in this case, there's no dispute that the purpose of the Act is set out in Section 1 of the Act, which provides a right of access and the protection of privacy. But in the decision, um, and, and in the decision, um, the IPC considers the right of access and identifies the purpose of the Act as facilitating democracy and accountability. That's a paragraph 105 of this decision. Um, he also found that that central purpose of the Act was... Yeah, but this, this is at a level of abstraction which is almost meaningless. It seems to me, when I looked at the legislation, that it really did one fundamental thing. It flipped the default. Historically, government documents were not available to the public. Freedom of information flipped that and said, ordinarily, government documents are, are henceforth to be available to the public, but there are certain exemptions. And the exemption, one of the exemptions was the uh, cabinet confidence. Because while the, 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 the default was flipped in terms of most uh, information inside government, it seems to me clear that what the legislature did was we are going to preserve the arrangements surrounding the operation of cabinet so as not to undermine the proper operation of an institution. And, and this high-minded wording, is, it's just, it just floats off into the ether. I mean, that's the practical consequence of what was done here, it seems to me. And, that's, and, and if that's what they were doing, isn't that really the purpose? So we agree with you that that, that, that preservation of cabinet confidentiality is enshrined in the text of the Act. The cabinet records exemption, first of all, is mandatory. There's only, um, just let me get to that. There's only seven uh, mandatory exemptions out of all 16 exemptions, or that might be eight. Let me just. Um, and in any event, out of those mandatory exemptions, only two are subject to what we refer to as the public interest override in the, in the Act. Um, that's Section 23 of the Act. Section 23 of the Act requires the head to consider whether compelling public interest in disclosure clearly outweighs the purpose of the exemption. So my apologies, it's eight exemptions out of 16 are explicitly subject to Section 23 of the Act. Out of those eight, six are discretionary and therefore not absolute in any event. Only two are mandatory and excluded from the public interest override. That's the cabinet records exemption and the national defense exemption, that's section 16. Section 23's already been described by this court in John Doe as the balance chosen by the legislature between the right of access and exemption, and the exemption. In that case, a narrow interpretation of the term advice was rejected as applying an unstated limitation to section 13, contrary to the balance chosen by the legislature as evidenced by its inclusion into Section 23. Similarly, it's our position that by excluding Section 12.1 from the list of exemptions to which Section 23 applied, the statutory balancing test, that the legislature rejected any scope for balancing or an unstated limitation in the case of the cadet records exemption. Well, that's, that seems to me to be quite important because that it's a mandatory uh, exemption. And so we, I asked you earlier about whether it derogated from the common law. I guess 
in some sense it does derogate from the common law because if it was a the common law test for public interest immunity then there would be a balancing so this does derogate insofar as it says if you fall prima facie within the scope of cabinet privilege you don't engage in any public interest balancing it's off the uh, it's, it's out so is that is that the right way to look at this I think that is the right way to look at this that what and what, what the IPC did was was conduct a balancing not not a test but conduct a balancing and drawing of the line um, and, and ignoring the fact that it, the balancing was done by the legislature um, and it was done in section 23 um, and because it's excluded and there are very few exemptions that are excluded he had to pay attention to the, to those words it's it, it is important and that meant giving full effect to the cabinet records um, exemption and the purpose of of, of that exemption um, that's exclusion from section 23 preserved the legislators prerogative to do that balancing um, of the competing public interests um, and therefore and, and and the IPC in 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 doing that balancing which you see in his decision um, um, we submit uh, and drawing that line um, it was inconsistent with the intent of the legislature as expressed um, in the act so um, my friends state that section because section 12 is not subject to section 23 that it is in effect more important to read that provision more narrowly but i urge you to disregard that invitation to ignore the legislature's words um, and which in effect would turn the purpose of the exemption on its head um, so my second point is that it was unreasonable for the IPC in conducting this balancing of what he viewed as opposing purposes in the act um, on other cases um, and uh, other who that are distinguishable because they are in respect of different freedom of information statutes where the legislature has drawn the line in a very different different place um, now and one of the cases that he relied on is is O'Connor um, and that's found at paragraph 108 and 97 of his decision that's the quote the balancing the balancing quote um, that he draws on um, and and cites for approval um, our position is that it was an error for him to rely on O'Connor um, as is stated and O'Connor is found in tab 27 of the decision of the condensed book as stated repeatedly in many parts of many parts of O'Connor itself the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal finds that the purpose of the Nova Scotia freedom of information statute to be more fully committed to disclosure um, it also describes its act as unique compared to all other provincial freedom of information acts um, and in paragraph uh, 57 of the decision actually reviews all of the other provincial information acts um, and says it's unique so it's in that context that you see this balancing statement for O'Connor that's eventually relied on by the IPC um, in this case and, and it's done and relied on with no mention of the specific context and statements made by the Nova Scotia Court of Appeal in O'Connor as to the uniqueness of the Nova Scotia Act. Um, um, in addition, the Nova Scotia Act provision is discretionary um, and is 
importantly, subject to Section 33, 31, which is the equivalent of Section 23 in Ontario's Act. May I just ask you, have, have you changed your idea about what the purpose of Section 12.1 is from your submissions in the IPC and after reading uh, Justice Lauer's dissent? So we have adopted that purpose, but my friend takes the position that it's different and inconsistent from the purpose that we had originally laid out, and it's our submission that it's not. It's, 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 it's the same. It's the same, um, and we've adopted his words as a fuller um, explanation as to the purpose. I mean, if, if you want to get down to the core of it, I mean, the purpose of the exemption is to create a zone of privacy from which cabinet can function effectively um, and efficiently. Um, so, you know, you can describe it in various ways. We have not changed our position as to the purpose of the exemption. We've merely adopted the words of Justice Lauer, which is consistent with um, um, which is consistent with the purpose that we postulated um, before the Court of Appeal. That uh, change of position, since we are on that, uh, the respondent CBC is making the argument that uh, you raise uh, before us several new arguments and that uh, we should not take into account those new arguments in order to find, to decide if the decision was reasonable or not. What do you say on that? So, Yes, yeah, so let me, let me take you to that. So my friend raises four issues as new issues. Um, one of them is our illustrative approach to the interpretation of the word including. Um, and so we, we dispute that. We, that is not a new issue. Um, I can take you to where it arises. But essentially, the position before um, that cabinet office has always taken before, um, before um, the IPC is that the opening words has to be read harmoniously and consistently with its subsections and made lengthy submissions as to its relationship with subsection A. Now, in my friend's divisional court factum, they adopted an expansive approach to the interpretation of the opening words, which we then responded to by naming it. So what you'll find, and let me take you actually to the divisional court uh, factum. Um, which is found in our uh, uh, okay, which is found in our condensed book. Mm. Okay. It is at uh, 57, I think. Possibly. Yes. Oops. In any event, um, I'm not sure I can. Okay. Um, It's 57, I think, the tab. Dense book tab 57, okay. Okay, here we go. Sorry. Um, okay. 
Okay, here we go. So in paragraph 32 of, our, of their, their divisional court facta, and this, of course, I'm talking about the CBC's uh, divisional court facta, what he, they're talking about is our reliance on Order 22. Um, Order 22 includes, concludes that the use of the word including in subsection 12.1 of the Act should be interpreted but as providing an expanded definition of the types of records which are deemed to qualify as subject to the cabinet records exemption, regardless of whether they meet the definition found in the introductory test of subsection 12.1. In other words, Order 22 does not expand the phrase would reveal the substance of deliberations, but rather recognizes that the specific paragraphs of section 12.1 as distinct grounds for the exemption that may go beyond the opening words. And then, um, and then further on in paragraph 47, he, they go on to then talk about the interpretive principles in O'Connor, which were taking the position incorrectly. And then they state that the IPC decision explains that subparagraphs um, A to F have been included to clarify that the exemption applies to specific types of records that might otherwise thought to fall outside the opening words of section 12 because they do not obviously reveal the substance of deliberations of executive counsel. So their answer to our position that the commissioner made a fatal error by not considering subsection A was to put forward an expansive mm -hmm. interpretation of the term including to justify um, that, that failure um, to, to consider subsection mm -hmm. A. That indeed, because of the expansive approach to the term including, you're not required to look at the list as relevant text and context. And it was we responded to that um, at the divisional court, um, and we also raised it at the Court of Appeal. We, don't, we only had a right of reply to the intervener, so we did raise it in our fact at the Court of Appeal, and that for the first time, that is when the CBC raised the fact that we were raising a new issue with okay. respect to the term including. But we, 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 uh, we, we deny that. Um, it was not a new issue. The interpretation of the word including has, was canvassed thoroughly before um, the IPC. It was also canvassed thoroughly before um, um, the Divisional Court and the Court of Appeal. And the expansive approach has been pro-offered by my friends as a justification for why the IPC did not consider yeah. subsection A. There's a difference between raising a new issue and raising a new argument. I mean, a new issue would be something that wasn't, the court wasn't called upon otherwise to decide. Like, you're asking us another question. It seems to me that what we're talking about here is not a new issue, but a new argument. And in my experience, trial judge, court of appeal judge, more recently sitting here, the arguments evolve from first instance, in this, in, in this case, through two appellate levels, this is the third appellate level, this is quite extraordinary here. But, and, 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 and that's just how it goes. That's, that's how uh, there's a refinement of arguments and a focusing on, on issues, which is different from a new issue, which is like a new question to be answered. 
Um, I would agree with that, Justice Rowe. So the other new issues that they raise um, are, a are a bit different. They belong to a different category. And of course, that's the French translation, um, as well as the legislative history of the Act. Um, and our position on the French translation is that it's equal authoritative value in statutory interpretation, and it, it should be encouraged to, to refer to it. Um, but yes, we, we do state that it was raised by us. We agree it was raised by us for the first time um, at, uh, at the um, Court of Appeal, or the, it may have been the Divisional Court, actually, um, in support of our interpretive exercise with respect um, to the term including. Could I ask you about the either now or when you get to it, uh, the remedy, because you just asked for the order to be set aside and Justice Lauer's, you're saying the remedy, the standard review is reasonableness, which bears on the remedy, because ordinarily, uh, if the decision is unreasonable, it's quashed and remanded. You just asked for the IPC order to be set aside and Justice Lauer's said uh, that effectively there's only one reasonable interpretation and he said, remanding to the IPC serves no useful purpose. So could you explain to me, because you've said you adopted his interpretation of the purpose, and I just don't, I'd like to understand why um, that couldn't be remanded to the IPC on your theory to consider that purpose and decide whether there's another uh, reasonable interpretation rather than only one reasonable interpretation. Well, um, I I, we actually agree with Justice Lowers that, um, that there is only one reasonable interpretation to the term including. It, there may be other reasonable interpretations with respect to the substance of deliberations, um, but to the term including, we agree with Justice Lowers that there's only one reasonable interpretation. In, in, in our respectful view, um, having the order set aside is in effect, um, is in effect, um, um, overturning um, the decision um, and and we agree with Justice Lowers that there there is real no utility to, to sending it back. Um, well I think he didn't just say it was uh, only one reasonable interpretation on the word including I think it's also on the purpose of cabinet privilege so I'm wondering why we wouldn't on your theory remand the issue to the IPC. Well his the, the IPC's um, interpretation was all about whether or not outcomes were exempt. Um, and we say that that's not reasonable. Um, and if this court agrees, then th again, there is no reason why um, to send it back. He made specific findings of fact, defining the policy priorities and the letters as outcomes. Um, and once, you know, if once a statement is made that indeed that, um, was not applicable, I think there'd be very little utility to sending it back. Okay. So turning to um, the, well, I, you've heard my submissions on French translation, the legislative history of the act. So it, legislative history, of course, as you're aware, is often raised um, as a, to support um, and to inform the court as to legislative intent um, and statutory purpose. It's, it's, you know, it's subject to the rules of evidence, their reliability, um, and so forth, and fairness to the parties. Um, I think that it's reasonable for this court to exercise, or and the Court of Appeal, which is where we raised um, some of the uh, legislative evolution um, issues. It's reasonable for a reviewing court to exercise their discretion to consider it. 
Oh, so I'm actually... But is the question whether it's reasonable for us to consider it, or is the question, was it unreasonable for the IPC to not consider it? Well, that, that is the question. Um, this is a sophisticated tribunal conducting statutory interpretation, and I believe that um, this court in Vavilov has stated that the culture of justification requires um, a certain rigor in respect of reasons. Um, and, and, but, but the decision fails in, in other respects in terms of not addressing relevant provisions in the Act. So um, failure to consider statutory purpose and, uh, and, legis and legislative evolution is, is, is all part and parcel of it. So I actually think that I'm going to make one more um, point and then, um, and then I'm going to turn the floor over to my friend because we're running out of time. Um, so it's our position um, also that So we, we reiterate, just to sum up, that the IPC statutory interpretation, in our respectful view, was unreasonable. It did not account for essential elements as the statutory provisions, text, context, purpose. We think that sub A was an essential element, should have been considered, as well as section 23 of the Act. Um, and, and the decision also suffers from a failure to justify the disregard of certain provisions. There's just no explanation provided um, as to why. Um, and, and as a result, um, we say that there has been a loss of confidence in the outcome of this decision such that it ought not be upheld. Um, and now I'm going to turn the court, um, turn the podium over to my friend, uh, Ms. Lake. Thank you. Chief Justice, Justices, I will be addressing Ontario's submission that Commissioner Beamish unreasonably adopted and relied upon a heightened evidentiary requirement from Order 1725 and applied it to this case. And based on this heightened evidentiary requirement, he unreasonably required evidence that the letters or its contents were actually discussed at the initial meeting, despite the fact that the letters were placed on a cabinet agenda. So we submit that this is unreasonable for three reasons. First, requiring evidence of a discussion for a record that's placed on an agenda creates an absurdity where the cabinet agenda is exempt, but a, a record that's referenced on the same agenda is not, which is inconsistent with Section 12.1a. And second, requiring evidence in this case would require evidence from a minister, which is inconsistent with the purpose of the exemption. And the, last, other, the other means of getting evidence as to what occurs in the cabinet room is to have the cabinet secretary attest to it. I know, having served in that capacity. And the notion that I would somehow sign an affidavit saying, this is what happened in the cabinet room, it, shall we say, is uh, contrary to how I viewed my role. Right. 
And, and that's exactly our position, right? Particularly on the facts of this case where the agenda was put forward and the agenda demonstrates that the letters were placed on the agenda for a minister's only discussion. So the only evidence that, was, that could be um, available to meet this heightened evidentiary requirement would be one from someone who was in that room, which would be the premier or the minister. Lastly, um, the third point is that Commissioner Beamish takes an unreasonably narrow interpretation of substance of deliberations by requiring evidence of a discussion of cabinet as a whole. And Ms. Im touched on this, but that's simply not contemplated in section 12. So in the interest of time, I'm gonna streamline my submissions, um, but just point you to paragraph 101 of the decision. That's at tab two, page nine of the condensed book. And this is where we submit, uh, Commissioner Beamish takes the language from order 1725 and then goes on to apply this heightened evidentiary requirement. And the language reads, if a record, and so this is Commissioner Beamish's finding, if a record does not appear at paragraphs A to F, so that would mean a record that falls under the introductory words, it will only qualify for the exemption if the context or other information would permit accurate inferences to be drawn as to actual cabinet deliberations at a specific cabinet meeting. So this is the heightened evidentiary requirement, actual cabinet deliberations at a specific cabinet meeting. And he, he adopts or incorporates this language from Order 1725. So I just want to talk briefly about the facts of that case, um, because it is a case that we submit is authoritative in, in that it's the case that very clearly finds that the Premier's deliberations are indivisible from the deliberations of Cabinet as a whole. And in that case, um, the entries that were at issue were calendar entries that of a senior staff member of the Premier's office and the records contained, uh, the IPC found that the records contained subjects that had a policy-making dimension. There were references to bills or pending legislation, or more generally, there was references to possible programs and initiatives. And many of the records contained only abbreviations, initials, um, short-form notations. And most of those records were found to be exempt under the introductory word wording of Section 12.1, um, because the IPC found that those records reflected the deliberative process of the Premier in his unique role of setting Cabinet's agenda, used here in the broadest sense, and identifying policy priorities of the government. So the language that Beamish adopts was taken when Commissioner Mitchinson, in that case, he was considering Section 12.1a because Section 12.1a was being relied on as well. So he was simply distinguishing that those records, so these calendar entries that had subjects, that they were not um, a cabinet agenda. So they couldn't be, they didn't fit the definition of an agenda under section 12.1a. I wonder whether uh, you, you might derive assistance from Justice Karakatanis' decision in the Provincial Court Judges uh, Association case on the procedure, because there uh, she spoke about the need for an affidavit. Uh, but the, that, the, that even the court shouldn't review, shouldn't inspect the document. And the principle, it seems to me, that you shouldn't have to eviscerate the privilege in order to establish it. Um, and similarly with solicitor-client privilege, you don't, you know, court generally doesn't review the document. So it seems to me that what one needs to do is establish the nature of the communication, the nature of the document. That's what needs to be established. That may be obvious from what it is, a general description of what it is, or you may need an affidavit. But really, you're referring to all these IPC decisions. I wonder whether Justice Karakatanis' decision in 
provincial court judges may be a more useful guide. Yes, and I think that's exactly right. So that's, that's, that's effectively our position, right? And I can just move on uh, to those three points. And, and you've touched on one of them, is that you know, requiring evidence in a case like this we submit would require a breach of the oath of secrecy or a breach of the confidentiality. And it can't be that in order to establish cabinet confidentiality, we have to breach cabinet confidentiality. That simply can't be the case. Um, and I just want to point, so you have it for your, for your reference, where we say this heightened evidentiary requirement was applied by Commissioner Beamish. And so that's at paragraphs 113 to 115 of the decision, um, tab two of our condensed book, page 12. So I won't take you to it, but if you, those three paragraphs really clearly set out what Commissioner Beamish said was missing. And he talks about specific deliberations and you know, actual deliberations and insight into what happened in the cabinet room. So essentially suggesting that the only way that we could meet this evidentiary requirement is by way of some sort of affidavit or information from people who are in the room um, when there simply was no one there except for ministers. Can, can you remind me, because of course we do have the, um, the letters available to us, can you just remind me, is that the standard procedure before the IPC um, that you have to um, submit the letters? or submit the document that's being challenged? Yeah, I think generally that's a process that, they're, that they can request that the, that the records that are at issue are made available to them. Sometimes there'll be confidential representations. But in this case, you know, we submit that the records on the face, like the records themselves on their face, plainly reveal the substance of deliberation. So they were put forward as the evidence, as well as a cabinet agenda that indicates that the records were placed on a cabinet agenda for a minister's only discussion. So I'll at, just... the, at the federal level, I've forgotten, and I know we're talking about the, the province here, but at the federal level, uh, the procedure is that the clerk of the Privy Council signs a document saying that I certify that these are records, and that's the end of the matter. Yeah. Re these are records of cabinet. That's the end of the matter. There's no review. No one gets to look at it. It's 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 the end of the line. Yeah, so that's, that's, we don't have that in the provincial in, in Ontario's HIPAA legislation. I think there's another province. I think Newfoundland has a similar procedure. Um, but yeah, in Ontario, we don't have that process. Um, but, you know, we submit that in this case, again, just submitting the records themselves, the letters themselves, as well as the agenda that references the, uh, the letters was sufficient evidence. Um, so again, just to reiterate those three points, there is this absurdity that's, that's created as a result of his um, findings that an agenda is exempt and that there's no requirement for evidence that all of the items listed on an agenda are actually discussed. That's just, it's, it's an agenda, it's exempt. You don't need anything else. But a, a record that's then referenced on the agenda is found to be exempt and this creates, we submit, um, an, an absurdity that is unreasonable. And I'm just going to conclude with the remaining seconds I have to wrap up Ontario's uh, position. The cabinet records exemption underscores the public policy of cabinet confidentiality that the legislature has deemed necessary and important to warrant exemption from the general practice of public disclosure. Ontario's position does not purport to exempt from disclosure anything more than what is protected under the provision that was designed to create a zone of privacy around the entire deliberative process of cabinet decision making. 
We reiterate that the IPC's statutory interpretation was unreasonable and did not account for essential elements of the statutory, statutory provisions, text, context, and purpose, and failed to be justified. In particular, it was unreasonable for the Commissioner to find that the records contained outcomes or products of deliberations that would not reveal the substance of deliberations or to ignore subsection 1A. In the, result, in the result, we submit that there has been a loss of confidence in the outcome of the decision, decision such that it ought, not, it ought not be upheld. Thank you very much. The court will take its morning break, 15 minutes. Thank you. Please be seated. Tara Kalan. Thank you. Chief Justice, Justices of this Court, the Attorney General of British Columbia's submissions will address two specific points. First, the approach taken in Aquasource is both a correct and a reasonable approach for a privacy commissioner or a court to take when considering cabinet production exemptions and freedom of information legislation. Second, to rely on Section 12 of FIPA, the evidentiary requirement should intrude as little as possible into cabinet confidences. So what should the scope of protection be? One of the key issues this court needs to resolve is how to interpret Section 12 of the Ontario Act. Currently, courts across the country take different approaches when considering cabinet documents in their freedom of information legislation. However, British Columbia says the British Columbia Court of Appeal struck the right balance when considering how to apply a similar section in the British Columbia Act. British Columbia submits the approach taken in Aquasource versus British Columbia should be considered to be both a reasonable and a correct approach for commissioners or courts to take when making decisions on cabinet exemptions. So then what is the Aquasource approach? In Aquasource, Justice Donald found that deliberations includes the written materials, communications, and most importantly, the body of information submitted to cabinet and outcomes of the meetings and discussions. Specifically, the BC Court of Appeal considered the interpretation of deliberations at paragraph 39, finding the phrase needs to include the body of information which cabinet considered or would consider. And I'll just read from that paragraph. It says, standing alone, the substance of deliberations is capable of a range of meanings. However, the phrase becomes clear when read together with including any advice, recommendations, policy considerations, or draft legislation or regulations submitted. That list makes it plain that substance of deliberations refers to the body of information which cabinet considered or would consider in the case of submissions not yet presented in making a decision. 
Justice Donald expanded on this point and found that both substance and deliberations should be given weight when determining the meaning of the section and further found that the class of things set out after the word including extends the meaning of substance of deliberations. Justice Donald rejected the notion that only the thinking of cabinet is protected at paragraph 40. If the substance of deliberations extends only to what was actually discussed at the cabinet table as opposed to the cabinet communications such as briefing materials and documents provided the, to them to be considered, then this protection under section 12 would be illusory since the meetings of cabinet are often not recorded and governments would be required to give evidence on exactly what was discussed at the cabinet table. Therefore, the provision should be broadly construed and deliberations should include the body of materials and communications provided to cabinet. Justice Donald ultimately found the test that emerges is, does the information sought to be disclosed form the basis for cabinet deliberations? British Columbia submits this is a correct and reasonable approach. The test is easy to apply and workable because disclosure of records that form the basis of discussions would reveal the substance of cabinet deliberations because it would permit the drawing of accurate inferences with respect to those deliberations. Once the first step is determined, the second step in the Section 12 analysis should be undertaken to decide whether any of the circumstances under Section 12.2 of the Ontario Act would apply. So then how should governments be able to assert this privilege? British Columbia submits that clarity regarding the types of evidence required to withhold cabinet documents should be included in the reasons for judgment. Consistent with the BC Attorney General versus the Provincial Court Judges Association of British Columbia case, British Columbia asserts that if the evidentiary requirement it should intrude as little as possible into cabinet confidences and care should be taken by courts to avoid inadvertently ordering the disclosure of a document which should in fact be withheld on the basis it will allow accurate inferences to be drawn about the substance of cabinet deliberations. British Columbia submits the type of evidence required should depend on the facts of each case. For example, at common law, this court has held that the government should submit a detailed affidavit in support of an assertion of public interest immunity. Senior adjudicators for the BC Office of the Privacy but Commissioner- wait, Now, before we go any further, there's, we don't want to mix up two things. One is if there's uh, something which occurred in cabinet, which is relevant to the determination, say, of a contract, there's a set of rules at common law as to, as to, as to how much you can require to be uh, disclosed for the purposes of, say, civil litigation. What we're talking about here is not that. What we're talking about here is the operation of the Freedom of Information Act. And I, and I think it's important not, there are some common characteristics, but, but conceptually they're really quite distinct, it seems to me. Uh, that's correct. Certainly the test for um, public interest immunity to withhold cabinet documents is quite different um, and it is you know a balancing test and there is a different test that's set out in the legislation. What I'm asserting to here is that the types of evidence required should depend on each case that's before the Information and Privacy Commissioner. I'm not trying to um, make submissions at this point about the test for public interest immunity. So um, in British Columbia, for instance, 
the BC Office of the Information and Privacy Commissioner has considered the issue and has held at, some, at least some inferential evidence that a document will disclose the substance of cabinet deliberations is usually necessary to prove that a document should be withheld under Section 12 of the British Columbia Act. However, in some circumstances, documentary evidence alone should suffice. For example, in the case of records that have been submitted directly to a cabinet committee that reveal the substance of the cabinet deliberations. British Columbia submits that inspection of withheld documents should not be routinely required. In some circumstances, it may be clear from the type and natures of the records themselves or from government submissions that Section 12 applies. In such cases, the document should not be required, and in cases where inspection of the withheld document is necessary, and it should be in limited circumstances only, the inspection should be done in camera. British Columbia also submits that where affidavit evidence is required, and where such evidence would need to include cabinet confidences, that affidavit should be received and reviewed in camera. So regardless of the specific outcome of these mandate letters, the court's decision should be informed by the importance of cabinet documents and the balance should be struck between access rights and the harm to the public interest that could result from overly broad disclosure of information. British Columbia also submits this court should provide guidance with respect to the manner in which governments are required to prove the cabinet exemption under Freedom of Information Act um, applies. And subject to any questions from this court, those are my submissions. Sean McDonough. Thank you. I appear on behalf of the Attorney General of Alberta. Uh, my colleague Melissa Briquette is here as well by video. Uh, I will be making the submissions on behalf of the Attorney General. I plan to direct my comments to the practical considerations informing the interpretation of Section 12. I will focus on three points. First, the need to protect the subject matter of discussion. Second, the need to protect the decision from, the, from disclosure. And third, the need to focus on substance over form. I'll then offer a brief response to the suggestion that the purposive interpretation of Section 12 that Alberta advances would render vast swaths of government information exempt from disclosure. Beginning then with the practical need to protect the subject matter of cabinet discussions. There's common ground among the parties that Section 12 is informed by the principles that underlie common law public interest immunity for cabinet privilege. The purpose of public interest immunity for cabinet records is discussed in some detail in this court's decision in Cary. And the citation for that case is 1996 SCR 637. And the discussion of interest is at page 658. In Kerry, the court noted the off-quoted rationale of promoting candor through cabinet confidentiality, but expressed the view, uh, borrowing from Lord Reed in the Conway case, the most important reason for protecting cabinet records was that premature disclosure can create or fan ill-informed or captious public or political criticism. The court repeated this concern again in Babcock. And I, I think this takes me to Justice Rowe's comment in his discussions with Ms. M about the IPC's decisions seem to focus primarily or exclusively on comments of individual members around the cabinet table. But what we see from the Kerry case is that uh, there's actually more to cabinet confidentiality than simply cabinet candor. In fact, there's three aspects of cabinet confidentiality. There's candor, there's also uh, the need for cabinet effectiveness, and there's cabinet solidarity. 
Disclosing the subject matter of cabinet discussions has the potential to create ill-informed or captious public or political criticism and add to the difficulty of governing. It's thus a, a problem for the effectiveness of cabinet. Knowledge of the policy matters are before a cabinet will often create controversy and criticism. It's easy to think of hypothetical, hypothetical examples, uh, things like uh, abortion or, or a provincial sales tax appearing on, a, on an agenda or being identified as subject matters. To use a recent example from Alberta, the COLA policy that governed uh, mining in the eastern slopes of the Rocky Mountains was repealed. Uh, eventually it was replaced, but in the meantime, there was considerable public interest and comment. Mere knowledge that matters are on a cabinet agenda or are appearing as subjects before a cabinet without any discussion around what cabinet actually said about those matters is likely to uh, prompt comment and criticism. And that comment and criticism will necessarily be uh, uninformed because it won't be privy to the actual discussions. So from a good governance perspective, the concerns are twofold. Uh, first, the distraction of dealing with capricious and, and ill-informed criticism. But secondly, ultimately, if, if the effect of putting matters on before a cabinet for discussion is that they have to be disclosed, uh, cabinet will be reluctant to do that. And not only will people not speak candidly about matters within cabinet, cabinet won't speak about the matters at all. Well, what will happen as a practical matter is what ordinarily occurs now in the cabinet room will probably occur in the premier's boardroom. And it won't be called a cabinet meeting, it'll just be called a meeting. I mean, people have to have a way of discussing these things frankly, and if they're not able to do it in the cabinet room, they'll do it somewhere else. Exactly, Justice Rowan. That's a point that uh, Justice Lowers made early in his dissent as well, that uh, effectively, cabinet needs to be able to govern. And if the FIPA provisions are interpreted in, in the way that the IPC initially interpreted them, it will just, it will just change the way uh, cabinet governs. It, it won't change the information people actually get. Uh, and really, um, that's not the role of FIPA to change how, how government operates. Uh, the, the conventions but part of the change of how government could operate could just simply uh, be how the mandate letters are structured and what's in them in terms of um, relating them to things that more clearly might be tied to words like deliberation or substance or confidentiality or all of the kind of boilerplate that may be introduced into such letters to ensure that um, the effectiveness and the candor and the solidarity points are maintained. Absolutely, that, that's one option or it could go the other way. And in fact, uh, the mandate letters, as perhaps has been done in the past, could be drafted for public consumption and not actually have the value that the Premier presumably intended in this case. Uh, moving on then, to speak to the practical need to protect cabinet decisions from disclosure, there's been some discussion of this already. I'll keep my comments fairly brief. Uh, I, I do think, though, that it's important that Cabinet be able to organize its agenda and priorities as it sees fit, and that in turn requires control over the disclosure of its decisions. Uh, to use another example, consider a case where uh, Cabinet has decided that they want to curb an illegal means uh, to immigration. It, it might be, though, before Cabinet wants that decision announced, 
they want to first make sure that there are adequate resources in place to allow for um, sufficient processing of legal applications or, or to ensure that there's no safety concerns going to be generated by closing off one route. Uh, they need, cabinet needs to be able to coordinate its priorities in, in such a way that uh, they emerge as a, as a cohesive whole and if cabinet decisions were, were disclosed before cabinet was in a position to do so voluntarily, that would certainly jeopardize that. The next point then is with respect to the need to focus on substance over form. Uh, and, and a lot of the points that Ms. M from Ontario made uh, go to this. So, I, and I don't wanna repeat any of those. Uh, our perspective is a little bit different here. And, and what I, I wanted to draw the court's attention to is that in this particular case, uh, the matter in question deals with a man with, with a number of letters, mandate letters, and one wonders though whether the result would have been different if instead of giving the, the letters, the premier had actually spoken to the ministers. The letters were addressed to essentially said the same comments that were in the letters, advised that these were government priorities, and and here's some guidance on how I want you to achieve them. Uh, one would think that that would be a pretty clear case of of discussions, uh, cabinet discussions and, and deliberations. Uh, so the point that I want to make here is that really the important thing to look at is, is the substance of the communications and, and not the form. Uh, and the ability to communicate in writing, of course, certainly increases the, the effectiveness of, of deliberations as, as opposed to the effectiveness of the exemption and, and cabinet's ability to function as opposed to simply limiting the protection to uh, verbal communications. Uh, and finally, I would like to address the suggestion that the proposed reading of Section 12 that Alberta advances unduly limits access to information. First, I'd say that to the extent that the suggestion relates to access to high-level closed-door policy issues, Alberta acknowledges that its proposed interpretation curtails access to that information, but argues that that is not undue. Section 12 appropriately creates a confidential sphere for high-level policy discussion to allow for effective functioning of government. This is nothing new and will not dramatically change transparency. The usual means to learn about and engage in discussion of government policy will continue to apply. Campaign commitments, speeches from the throne, public announcements, questions to politicians, parliament and legislative debates, now, this is particularly true for policies that need legislative action to implement. And of course, uh, when it comes to implementation, the policies will almost always need to be disclosed to facilitate that. Now, to the extent that the argument against Alberta's interpretation is not uh, with respect to the limit on high-level policy documents, but with respect to the, li the limit more generally, uh, in other words, suggesting that it's somehow uh, usurping FIPA of its uh, meaning, I would say that uh, that uh, criticism doesn't bear out. Requesters will continue to have access to information about what government has done. Cabinet records remain a small and narrow set of government documents. The vast majority of government documents do not involve cabinet level policy decisions. However, in the event that the public is concerned that cabinet is somehow abusing the traditions and convention of secrecy, the, their remedy is at the ballot box. Those are my submissions. Thank, Thank you very you. much. Thank you. Justin Safayini.
Good morning, uh, Chief Justice and Justices. This appeal is about the ability of the public to access records that go to the very core of what access to information regimes are designed to facilitate an informed citizenry, accountable government, and ultimately the democratic process. This appeal is also an important test of this court's approach to reasonableness review and whether it will send reviewing courts a message to adhere to the principles of restraint and respect for the distinct role of administrative decision makers set forth in Vavilov, uh, or adopt something closer to correctness review in substance. Um, in this case, in my submission, the IPC considered the letters in the redacted agenda before him, which was all the evidence he was provided. He applied long-standing principles accepted by the parties and reflected in his own jurisprudence. And in the result, he concluded there wasn't sufficient evidence to establish that the mandate letters met the accurate inferences test. He provided thorough reasons for his decision, taking into account how the case was argued and framed before him and what points were and weren't in dispute. Two levels of reviewing court have upheld that decision as reasonable, and it's the respondent's respectful submission that the same result should follow here. In terms of a roadmap, I will address the interpretive exercise taken by the IPC his treatment of the letters as the outcome of the Premier's deliberations and as disclosing possible topics of discussion by Cabinet. In accordance with this Court's direction this morning, my friends from the IPC will limit and focus their issues to those related to the standard of review. So let me start with a discussion on the legislative purpose and the IPC's treatment of that issue, which received some commentary from, from members of the bench this morning. And um, in my respectful submission, it is, it is clear that the IPC began his analysis by asking himself what the purpose was of this particular provision. You can see that at paragraph 86 And what if they reason. completely misconceived the purpose? Well, Justice Rowe, I would say he didn't misconceive the purpose. And, and not only that, he conceived of it in exactly the way it was framed before him by the parties. If you look at the Cabinet Office's submissions, and we've included some of those at tabs C5 and C7 of our compendium, I won't take you there, I'll just leave you with those tab references. The overwhelming focus, whether they were drawing from the common law, whether they were drawing from uh, the Williams report, whether they were drawing from other sources, was on the candor and the related solidarity rationale for uh, maintaining a degree of cabinet secrecy. The concern was we don't want to inhibit free and frank exchanges of ideas and views by ministers in the course of their decision making. And that is exactly the concern that, frankly, the CBC accepted and that the IPC accepted at the outset of his analysis. That was the way it was framed. That was the way the purpose was accepted. Now, before this court, um, my friends have reframed the purpose. Uh, I say somewhat more broadly, um, uh, in the same way that Justice Lowers did in the court below, there's now a discussion about um, a robust and well-protected sphere of confidentiality in accordance with established conventions of cabinet 
government. Is it your position that uh, if there was actually that reframing, is it their position that they could not do that reframing? We, we don't say that specifically with respect to the purpose. Uh, we don't call that a new argument per se. What we do say is that obviously in conducting reasonableness review, you have to pay careful attention to how things were framed before the decision maker. That is an important part of the exercise. Um, we also say that even if you consider the purpose this way with reference to cabinet conventions, it doesn't really advance the analytical ball because the cabinet convention that is at issue here is the Cabinet Secrecy Convention. That's the convention that my friends have put authorities on before you. That's the one on which they rely. And if you look at my friends' own authorities, the Cabinet Secrecy Convention is concerned primarily with the exchange of views and opinions of ministers in the course of the Cabinet deliberative process. Now we're getting concrete. So you're basically saying that what is covered by this is the exchange of views which occurs in one room during one meeting once a week and nothing else. That seems to me what you're putting to us. And that is, in my understanding of cabinet government, a fragment, only a fragment of the operation of cabinet. But you're saying that the legislature purposely exposed all other aspects of the operation of cabinet except what the Minister of Transport said to the Minister of Finance when the Premier recognized each of them to speak. I, I, I don't say that, Justice Rowe, with respect. Um, I, I, I don't uh, in any way limit uh, the, the forum or the manner of how those views and opinions are exchanged in the context of the um, cabinet's deliberative process. I don't say they have to happen across the table. I don't say they have to necessarily even reveal opposing views. Uh, that's, that's not what this is about. But isn't, but, that, isn't that what the IPC said is required as an evidentiary basis? Demonstrate to me with sufficient evidence that there was an actual discussion on this. In the absence of that, it's just Cabinet confidence has nothing to do with it unless there's an actual discussion. Put me inside the cabinet room, let me look over the shoulder of the ministers, and, and only the most narrow component of the overall operation of the cabinet can be protected if you demonstrate with evidence that, that such a conversation occurred. This is an enormously narrow sliver of the operation of cabinet. And, and I, I put it to you that in fact, your whole position is premised on the fact that the legislature decided to take what was a broad convention of cabinet secrecy and collapse it into this sliver. And that is the basis upon which this in legislation is supposed to be interpreted. It's extraordinary. So let, let me try and respond in a couple of ways. I would say, first of all, um, the Cabinet Secrecy Convention, you can see this most clearly in Professor Dombrain's article, which is my friend's authority that they rely upon. It's, it's absolutely clear. It protects the decision-making process, the exchange of views and opinions. It does not protect the decisions themselves. The Convention does not go that far. So it's not reducing... So do the, you have any authority for that other than an article? 
Uh, I mean, it's it, uh, th that article and the other article by um, Professor Campagnolo, which accepts Professor Dombrain's um, uh, description of the issue, would be the primary authorities. I would also note that nowhere in the Williams report or in any of this court's cases has it suggested that um, decisions or outcomes of decision making uh, are fall within the scope of the Cabinet Secrecy Convention. So there, there's, there's not an authority the other way either. But, but let's not forget, the decisions of Cabinet in the sense of the records of decisions in 12 sub 1 sub A, which are uh, what my friend clarified this morning they are not relying on, those are protected. That is not at issue here. Those records of decisions are not somehow going to be open to public viewing before a cabinet wants to announce them because of this case. That is not what this is about. This is not about records of decision of cabinet. So put aside the issue of decisions, because we're dealing with mandate letters uh, in this case, uh, uh, Mr. Safiani, but Take, take the example that Mr. McDonough just gave us. Um, if Premier Ford had read, you know, read the mandate letters verbatim uh, into the record of Cabinet before his colleagues while they sat there listening, would your, would your analysis and your, uh, your uh, approach be any different? Or would that then be subject to disclosure because it wouldn't be a deliberation, uh, so the substance of deliberation. If you'd read it into the record. I mean, put, putting, putting aside the difficulty of obtaining that type of record, it would not change the analysis, right? The, the analysis is whether the record, oral, written, in the cabinet room, out of the cabinet room, discloses the substance of deliberations. And, and that analysis is decided according to a test that the IPC has applied for over 30 years. The well, that's, that's quite a concerning matter then. If we are now going to be sticking, uh, you know, a scanning electron microscope on everything that happens in cabinet, because now we can actually intrude on what it is that's discussed in the cabinet room. We can examine whether this goes to the substance of deliberation. We have to have affidavits from uh, cabinet ministers or the secretary of cabinet. So I'm wondering what the reach of this principle that you're uh, expounding is? Well, per perhaps the, the way to address that concern is a practical one, right? I mean, there, there are no recordings made of cabinet meetings. There are minutes of cabinet. Minutes of cabinet are, again, in 12 sub 1 sub A, expressly exempt from disclosure. This is not a case where minutes of cabinet are going to start flying around because of the decision in this very case. Um, it, it, a minister's handwritten notes about what goes on, or the, cabinet secretary's handwritten notes. I mean, I just, I guess it's a sliver that you're talking about, and it's a sliver that would require us to go in and examine entire conversations to see what a particular point is directed at. And I guess that indirectly you're answering the question that I posed initially. I looked through the decision, the reasons for decision, and other than summarizing the views, the, the submissions of the parties about the importance of cabinet privilege and the constitutional dimension, I did not see the reasons engage with that anywhere in the analysis. So I was going to ask you where 
it's engaged with. But I think your, your submissions are really making another point. There was no need to engage with it because it just doesn't exist. It's only simply discussions on the pros and cons of a specific subject matter that's discussed in the cabinet room. That's so I, what I'm hearing. I, let, me, let me try and clarify. I mean, we're, we're getting, I was trying to address questions about the scope of the convention, okay? The purpose that the IPC identified is related to that, but it is broader. It's to allow for the free and frank exchange of views in the context of decision-making. It's not limited to the cabinet room. It's not limited to uh, um, a certain type of record or a certain forum for the communications. Um, and that concern is identified specifically in paragraphs 86 and 87. And engaging with that concern on the facts of this case as to whether disclosure of this type of record is going to undermine that purpose. I'm sorry, is, 86 and 87, he's just repeating the submissions. Um, well, he's, he's he recognizing that- He separates his own analysis from here's what they told me. Well, the 86 and 87 fall under this heading of analysis and findings. Um, he is accepting the purposes put before him by the parties. Uh, he, he doesn't frame it any differently. Um, he, it is his analysis and interpretation. That, that, is, that is where that discussion is found. Earlier in the uh, decision, Justice Karakasanis, I agree with you, he reproduces at some length the positions of the parties, but at 86 and 87, he is, uh, he is accepting those as the purpose of the provision. And, and if you... In 87, he accepts it. Or I'll just go back and reread them again. I've read them quite a few times. I, I mean, I, I just say that the placement of those under analysis findings is, he's not simply recording views. He is, um, he is accepting that. And at 88, he says, with this background in mind, I turn to the interpretation of the words. I, I think he is accepting that purpose. And perhaps even more to the point, when you look at his analysis at 126, 123 to 126, which is where he discusses, is this going to have a chilling effect? Is this going to have a negative impact on candor? He is linking it exactly to that purpose. That is, that is what he is concerned about. He is testing his interpretation against the consequences of disclosure in this case. There would be no reason to do that if he didn't accept that the purpose of this was to allow for the free and frank exchange of views. Um, which again is exactly what this court has said in the common law cases and it's exactly what the Williams report focuses on as the basis for uh, uh, this provision. But can I ask you a basic question about the nature of, of the mandate letters? <clears throat> because it, it seems to me as if you're taking the position that their decisions already taken and therefore deliberation has ended. And I guess um, if we go back to the conventions and the Westminster uh, ideas that the Premier or the Prime Minister is a first among equals, why aren't they the start of a conversation? Even if a job description, why isn't when the Premier says, here's what I'd like the government to do and here's specifically 
the uh, things I hope that you will accomplish. Can't we just read that and anticipate understanding the framework that a minister may be able to come back and say, this is not possible, this is not feasible, it's contrary to what you're telling agriculture to do? I mean, that it is the start of a conversation and not a final decision that somehow doesn't pertain to how they will go about um, uh, deliberating in the future. Thank you, Justice Martin. And, and, and I think it's common ground that these are not absolutely set in stone final policies um, or decisions in that sense. But what the IPC said on this issue, and it kind of is a way of encapsulating this continuum of deliberations argument that my friend makes and has made throughout this case, is that that's really not the way to approach this exemption based on how it is framed and based on the language that is used. The language that is used is not intended, for example, to offer a broad blanket exemption to all cabinet-related documents. I mean, that could have been a way to frame this kind of exemption that would afford a much broader berth of um, uh, uh, zone of privacy, as my friends say. Um, but what the IPC says, and in my submission it's, is, a, is a reasonable interpretation, is that the test here is focused on the substance of deliberations. And, and where these letters fall is, uh, in a sense, in, in, in the middle. It's, it's, it's the outcome of the Premier's deliberative process, so we're not getting into the issues and options and views and advice that he may have considered, that proposed or rejected in the, in the sense of coming up with what's in the letters. Um, and it's too far removed from whatever's actually going to go before cabinet at the end of the day for the actual decision-making process. And he's very careful to note that um, if a minister comes up with plans, proposed policies, reviews, and puts those materials before cabinet for the actual act of decision-making, where these high-level general priorities are translated into the mechanics of what cabinet has to consider, he's very careful to say those materials may well be exempt. Those materials may well reveal the substance of cabinet's deliberations, but right now all I have is letters that say, review this issue, consider these options. Uh, well, let's, let's, let's get an example close by here, down the street on Wellington. So, um, and this is, I'm making this up, this is not inside, I haven't, I, I didn't see inside the Langevin blog. But let's say the, the Prime Minister writes to the Minister of National, uh, public security uh, and, um, and the person who's responsible for the RCMP. I want something on the next cabinet agenda about this situation on Wellington Street, this convoy process. We have to make a decision here and I want it you know, on the agenda next week. According to your analysis, that letter is, is not in any way, uh, would, would not in any way be protected. I know I'm referring to the feds, but uh, you know, give me a little leeway here. And so the fact that the Prime Minister says to the Minister of uh, Public Security, bring something on the agenda, that's, that really triggers the whole process of cabinets uh, uh, undertaking a consideration of it. You see, that in your estimation is not a cabinet confidence even though it is, it is the establishment of the, of the agenda for cabinet. What you're saying is, 
when they get inside the room, what Minister A says to Minister B, are we going to shut down this protest or are we going to let it go for another couple of weeks? That's protected. But the fact that the Prime Minister says, get this on the Cabinet next week, and, 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 because that's what's needed, isn't protected. But it doesn't it come down to that? So, it, I mean, it, it would, this gets into whether subject matter or topics are necessarily protected. Okay? And, and my, my friend's position is that they are necessarily protected because she draws the analogy between an agenda and anything that suggests something may be discussed by cabinet. Um, what the IPC said is not that subject matters or topics can never be protected. What he says at paragraph 90, and he follows his own jurisprudence, which goes back uh, a number of years, is that they are generally not protected. But I have difficulty but, to follow that because if an agenda, an agenda, it, it's just a list of topics to be discussed at a meeting. If the agenda is protected, how can you say that a topic or a subject matter are not necessarily protected? I try to understand that. Well, I mean, and this, go, this is now we're getting into the illustrative versus the expansive approach, right? Which, which, I, will, which I will try to get to in, in a moment. If you, if you accept the illustrative approach, then yes, an agenda, anything that looks like an agenda should be protected. If you accept the expansive approach, as the IPC did, and as I say he was reasonable to, then an agenda is a specific extension that despite not necessarily or obviously revealing the substance of deliberations, has been included, but that doesn't mean we go back and we torque the meaning of substance of deliberations so that anything that looks like an agenda item gets the same exempted approach. And indeed, the, the case that my friends put before the IPC, this PO 1725, which you've seen discussion about in the materials, and that they cited as authoritative, those are their words, before the IPC, makes exactly this point. The exact argument that you, you're made, making, Justice Cote, was made in that case, that this is essentially like an agenda. These um, uh, entries in a scheduling book, which is what was at issue in, this case, in that case, are going to reveal the topics of what's going to be discussed at Cabinet. They're an agenda. They're exempt. And the IPC rejected that argument. He ultimately found some of the records exempt, but he found them exempt because when analyzing them in detail and the substance that they actually contained, he was convinced that they would do more than just reveal the topics, that they got into the substance of deliberations, the views and options and opinions exchanged in the course of establishing priorities. But he did that on a principled basis, applying the accurate inferences test, not by way of analogy. So for you, a topic or a subject matter, it's not part of substance of deliberations? I would say it's not necessarily part of the substance of Do you make a distinction between the word deliberations, which is used alone, for instance, in 12.1a, and substance of deliberations? If the legislator took the trouble to talk about substance of deliberations in the preamble, in the section 12.1, and 12.1a is talking about deliberations alone, should I see a distinction between those two? Well, it, it, in a sense, yes, in the sense that every word has to have meaning, and I say that the word substance is an important part of this case. And it is broader than the deliberations themselves. 
No, I would not say it's broader than the deliberation. You would not themselves. say that. I would say it's focusing on a particular aspect of them. I mean, maybe the way to answer this is to take you to what the cabinet office itself accepted as the interpretation of those words before the IPC. Well, we're not bound by we're not bound by that. So I think we need to know. Can I understand, following up on Justice Cote's uh, question and what you said earlier, is this narrower? Is it obviously the Ontario Legislature can narrowly define the uh, constitutional convention of cabinet secrecy than is provided for at common law. I have, we have the position of the Ontario government. What is, your, what is your position? Is this narrower than what is provided for at common law, or is it intended to codify the common law? I, I don't say, Justice Jamal, that it's intended wholesale to codify the common law. I, I would accept that in the Williams Commission, obviously there's discussion about um, cabinet confidences. That's an issue that they had in mind when uh, creating that report. And I, I don't dispute that the report played some role in the ultimate um, adoption of this legislation. Um, but we have to look at the way it was drafted and interpret the words that were ultimately used. If, if the intention was to simply import parliamentary convention as it related to the operations of cabinet, that could have been done. That could have been done in the same way that solicitor-client privilege as a concept was imported elsewhere in the Act. It could have been done like elsewhere in Ontario statute book, like the memory. Well, except the case law often uses the phrase substance of deliberation in talking about the scope of the convention. So I'm trying to understand, is this different than the common law? Or is it simply using the words in lieu of cabinet privilege, using the words that the case law uses, which is the substance of uh, deliberations of the Executive Council? Well, I, I, as I say, I, 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 don't, I don't say that they were intending to import. I don't read the Williams Commission um, report as saying that, uh, and, and I, I don't say that they were intending to import it wholesale. But what I would also say is that even if you accept the view or adopt the view um, uh, that that was what was intended here, the conventions that we are talking about, which is the secrecy convention, um, doesn't net, that it doesn't cover all, whatever you want to call it, decisions, outcomes, etc. Um, so, whether I whether ask we, you this because I think that I, 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 I really do find the issue of illustrative versus expansive not to be very helpful. If we accept for a moment, however, that the IPC was entitled to say it's not expansive, and that. Um, um, and so you don't have to, using your words, torque the meaning of the phrase substance of deliberations to include all of the examples that are given in the sub -list, uh, you know, subsections. Would it not still be relevant, however, when you're doing statutory interpretation to consider the statute in which the words are found and particular other um, aspects of that same section? And that's what I understand the AGO's argument to be, not that you have to go illustrative versus expansive, but that when you're interpreting the words um, substance of deliberation in 20, uh, uh, you know, in the opening words, that you have to look not only at the text, but also at the context and at the purpose, and that it should be relevant to inform statutory interpretation 
in even a, even in a robust reasonableness review. So I I, I accept Justice Karakasanis that the context is relevant in the statutory interpretation exercise, of course, um, and. Believe me, as much as I'd love to sidestep the illustrative expansive argument, I, I do think it comes back to that, though, because the question is not ignoring the context, which uh, my friend sometimes uses that phrase, but on a fair reading of the decision, he doesn't ignore the context. At paragraphs 101 to 102, for example, he specifically says, look, all of these subparagraphs I say they've been included here because they don't obviously reveal uh, the substance of deliberations. He turns his mind to that. So it's not a question of whether the context has been thrown aside. It comes back to the question of what role does the context play. And in the view of the IPC, he determined that the role the context plays is setting out these specific expansions or extensions of when the exemption applies. Um, and that's how he interpreted the statute. Now, that's not to say um, that something that looks like an agenda or something that looks like a decision can never be exempt. And uh, I took it, or I at least referred to paragraph 90, where the IPC clearly says that with respect to subject matter. The divisional court at paragraph 25 of its decision says um, that the IPC decision similarly should not be taken to say that outcomes in every case are going to be uh, subject to disclosure. What his decision says, read as a whole, is that it's going to depend. It's going to depend. These are not automatic exemptions that are going to be granted because something looks like an agenda or something looks like a decision. We have to look at the substance of the record, and we have to figure out, is this going to disclose the substance of deliberations, or is it not going to disclose the substance of deliberations? And, and that determination is borne out by what he actually did in this case. He doesn't throw up his hands and say, these are just outcomes, game over, or this is the uh, subject matter of potential deliberations down the line, game over. He carefully looks at the records and assesses, is this going to be close enough to, to revealing what cabinet will look at down the line? No. Is this close enough to revealing what the premier himself deliberated on in creating these records? No. He does that analytical work. He doesn't categorically exclude them because they fall into one, uh, one category or another. But what if his conclusions on those two points are themselves unreasonable when you look at the nature of the, deliber uh, of the substance of what's in those letters? Well, it's, it won't surprise you to hear that I, I say they're not unreasonable. But we are, we are now in, in the world of um, essentially assessing his view of the evidence, his view of the facts. Um, and, and but, but is this really about the facts? Isn't this about the law? I mean, you only need an affidavit saying this was dealt with in cabinet or it wasn't if you interpret the law in a certain way. So, I mean, to me, the whole business of the content of the affidavits is a, a very, very minor matter in this. The question is whether you need evidence of that nature at all. 
Well, let, let me address the evidentiary issue because it's come up a few times now. And, and no one is suggesting that, you know, a cabinet minister themselves has to swear an affidavit or, or come before the ISPC in some viva voce process. If you look at the cases, not just in Ontario, but across the country, um, including in BC, which my friends kind of hold up as an example, including in Nova Scotia, which you know, we say is perhaps closer to uh, uh, a reasonable approach akin to what the IPC did here. In all of these jurisdictions, there has been evidence put before an IPC decision maker as to whether something was discussed in cabinet, whether cabinet received a certain record, whether they deliberated upon it, doesn't necessarily get into all the details, but that evidence is put forward. Sometimes it's put forward by uh, senior public servants, like the assistant deputy minister in O'Connor. Sometimes it's put forward by senior members of the cabinet office itself, uh, perhaps not the secretary of cabinet, but other members in the cabinet office. Sometimes, um, it's done on the basis of comparisons to cabinet submissions. So we've uh, given you um, uh, one case. Uh, the cases, by the way, that I'm talking about, I'll, I'll just note, are at C21 to C25 of our, um, of our uh, condensed book. Uh, in some cases, it's done by way of comparing the record that sought to be exempt with cabinet submissions. In other words, the idea being this record should be exempt because it looks like something that cabinet actually did consider, and we know that it deliberated upon. Okay, but, but aren't the letters themselves in this case? I mean, they are, what if the document itself on its face um, demonstrates that it represents the views of the premier on what needs to be done and taken to cabinet? What if it does that? Do you need any other evidence beyond that? Justice Kerrigan, I, I accept that there will be cases where the document itself will be enough. And I, I, don't, I don't take issue with that proposition, and I think that's well established in the IPC jurisprudence. The question is whether the letters themselves in this case fall into that category. Um, and, and the IPC, I say, reasonably determined that they didn't. Um, from the level of generality in the letters in terms of establishing the policy priorities, the IPC found it was simply uh, too vague an assertion to say many of these are going to return to cabinet at some point in time in the future. And that analysis, again, is consistent with his own jurisprudence stretching back many years. Um, so I'm going to let but, you in on a little secret. What goes to cabinet is what is politically important. It's always discussed in cabinet because they always have to come out united. They always have to have an exchange of views, and they all have to say, this is where we're going to go as a government. And then the doors open and they come out and they're one. Everything that is of significance finds its way at some point to cabinet. And the mandate letters say, these are the matters of significance. You can draw almost 100% a straight line from the content of the mandate letters to what happens at some point in cabinet, because it, in the end, it is a political institution. And, and, and the matters of priority for the government are always political matters. So, I mean, Justice Rowe, that, that, that is not the finding of fact that the IPC made. Um, I, I would note that even 
the Cabinet Office's own submissions didn't go quite so far. Uh, they said many of these will return in the form of different proposals and reviews. Again, those proposals and reviews, if and when they should ever occur, uh, may well be exempt. Um, but the link between the cat, the, these letters and potential discussions on some other document that may emanate from a minister's work following the high-level guidance they've been provided, the IPC found was simply too attenuated. And that's not a new proposition. The IPC uh, has had other cases in the past where they've reached a similar conclusion, that something is simply too remote, even if there's some link to something that may go before cabinet in the future, it's simply too remote. I think it's fair to say that not every single point in each of the mandate letters came before cabinet. That's, that's a fair proposition. I think uh, one can infer that not every matter would have come before, but surely what doesn't actually come before cabinet is revealing of cabinet's uh, deliberations and the fact that certain items may have been listed in the mandate letters and didn't come to cabinet is itself revealing of cabinet's deliberations so to require a test that says your bullet point listed in the mandate letter has to come to cabinet even though the, the premier says it's a priority of this government and this cabinet uh, seems to me to be also revealing of the substance of deliberation so i wonder how it can be the test can be this needs to be discussed at a cabinet meeting and come before cabinet otherwise you're out of luck well, it, the test is not necessarily that, Justice Jamal. I mean, there's, there was two different arguments made, right? That the first argument was these are listed on an agenda, and so they, to, to use the words of the Cabinet Office, they, it's reasonable to expect that certain key priorities would have been discussed at the initial meeting. Um, and that, that's one way of trying to meet the test. The other way to try to meet the test, uh, which my friends try to meet the test, is to say at some point down the line they may or may not be deliberated upon. So it's not, it's not, and the third way, of course, was to say that they would disclose the Premier's own deliberation. So it's not solely trying to link them to a, uh, a future discussion at some point down the road. Um, had the record been different on how these letters were presented at the initial cabinet meeting, um, or indeed, had the letters themselves been different? Had the letters themselves offered some um, invitation or suggestion of a discussion as to the ranking of the policy priorities, the outcome may well have been different too. Uh, this is not a case where any correspondence a premier sends to a minister is going to go flying out the door to the media because of the outcome here. Um, the divisional court, I think, Put it right that this is a sufficiency of evidence case it turns on the record in this particular case and although the divisional court and justice lowers don't agree on a lot one of the things they do have in common is kind of recognition of this point justice lauer says this is likely to be a one-off this is probably not going to be done again in exactly this way and while on a principled basis i say that shouldn't drive the bus here i think it's worth remembering that this was at the end of the day rooted in evidentiary considerations of the record before the IPC and not some broader, ultimate, uh, immutable distinction between outcomes, subject matter, and substance. Um, those uh, characterizations of the letters uh, were used by the IPC 
consistent with the way that my friends argued the case as uh, subject matter of potential deliberations down the line and as the culmination of the Premier's own deliberative process. Uh, but they didn't drive the ultimate result. What drove the ultimate result was whether these letters would uh, satisfy the accurate inferences test on the record before him and whether they would disclose the substance of deliberations. So for you, it's not a statutory interpretation case, it is a statutory application case. No, I mean, it is a, it is a statutory interpretation so case as well. So it's not just a question of evidence. You need to determine how to interpret Section 12. That, that's fair, Justice Cote. All I'm saying is that even on my interpretation, it does not follow that in every future case where we have uh, correspondence exchanged um, that can be classified on some view as an outcome or a subject matter, that it's going to go flying out the door. Um, that, that, that's my point. Um, I it didn't really uh, get past the, the purpose of 12.1, but in my relatively limited time that remains, I do want to uh, go to the overall purposes of the Act as well, which is, in my submission, extremely important and throughout um, my friend's submissions received uh, relatively little attention. Um, the overarching purposes of this act, as this court explained in DAG, are that it helps ensure citizens have the information required to participate meaningfully in the democratic process and that politicians and bureaucrats remain accountable to the citizenry. And the ultimate purpose, as this court said in DAG, is to facilitate democracy. And um, Justice Rowe, I know you took issue with the um, perhaps the utility of the way that the purpose provision is put in the statute. But in my respectful submission, it is an extremely important factor to consider here. We have a explicit statutory direction that all exemptions, and I underline all exemptions, doesn't matter whether they're subject to a legislative override. It does not matter if they are mandatory or discretionary. All exemptions um, need to be limited and specific and necessary. Those <clears throat> overarching exemptions, as this court has recognized in cases like Levine and in Justice LaBelle's concurring decision in the Canada Information Commissioner case, um, militate in favor of a narrow interpretation of exemptions to the right of access. The IPC carefully took account of those broader purposes of the Act as well, as he was required to do. Right? We can't just look at 12 sub 1 and say, we're really worried about the efficacy of Cabinet. Of course, Cabinet candor and solidarity are relevant considerations. I don't dispute that. But we can't look at that in a vacuum. We have to consider what is this overall Act intended to achieve, and when you look at what the Act is intended to achieve in terms of facilitating democracy and increasing transparency and accountability, I say it's hard to think of a set of documents that engage those overarching purposes more directly than the mandate letters. Right? These are the documents that uh, a newly elected government is using to articulate the policy priorities they say they're going to be focus on, focusing on during their term in office. 
And that is precisely what the public would be very interested in understanding and knowing in order to fulfill those objectives of the act. And I, I say respectfully, we cannot lose sight of that when interpreting the language in 12 sub 1. Surely that puts the court cart before the horse, though, because uh, solicitor-client communications of government or of anybody else might be, or of the CBC, may be extremely revealing of, uh, and may contribute to democracy, to the search for truth. But we don't provide for those uh, disclosure of those sorts of documents because the, the, the virtue of truth-seeking is subordinated to other public policies. So it seems to me, just as one wouldn't take a narrow approach to solicitor-client privilege based on the undoubtedly important purposes of the Act. Surely one shouldn't also take a narrow approach to cabinet confidences once they're properly defined. So I, I don't say necessarily that um, you have to take an unduly narrow approach, but I suppose it's a matter of weighing both purposes when you're adopting the interpretation. But, you so know, the, op the operation of the executive is quite fundamental to the, to the Westminster system of government. I, I find it very difficult to accept that the legislature, the provincial parliament said, we are going to change the Freedom of Information Act, and we're going to do it in a way that really restricts the operation of the executive. Now, we won't say it that way, but implicit in this is, is really quite a fundamental change about how the executive operates. I, I mean, that, that to me is, is, is just hardly plausible. What it, it seems to me is more plausible is that the ordinary rule will become that information held by the government will be uh, released, uh, people will have access to it, but there's going to be a ring fence around the proper operation of cabinet because we want to preserve that part of our governmental system. And that's not the approach that uh, the uh, IPC took. Well, r respectfully, I say that it is consistent with the approach that the IPC took. The IPC recognized, again, the underlying purpose of ensuring that there is this ability to exchange views freely and frankly. But let me, um, you know, perhaps look at this slightly differently. I mean, I've already made the point that um, the convention that is engaged here, uh, it, it is not inconsistent at all with that convention to uphold the IPC's decision as reasonable. And indeed, when you look at the record we have before us on this specific type of communication, the mandate letters to ministers, this is not something that goes back 200 years in parliamentary convention. I mean, the record is that these are relatively uh, recent types of communication, that these communications, at least in Ontario, since their inception in 1993, have been made public, and that in the vast majority of other jurisdictions in Canada, they have been public as well. So, I mean, to the extent that we're trying to draw on convention and tradition as it relates to this specific type of communication, I say not only is it not covered by the Cabinet Secrecy Convention, but at least recent convention or tradition, whatever you want to call it, uh, supports that they are uh, not required, at least, to be private in order for cabinet to fulfill its role. But, but the act specifically allows that there could be um, an express, uh, whether the term is waiver or 
of, of any exemption that the statute grants, right? So I, I'm not sure I find that helpful on one side or the other. Correct, and I, I take the point that some of the ones that have been released may have been created for the purpose of public consumption. I think that's fair, but what I would also say is that when you go back to the IPC's factual findings here, the IPC is clear that obviously the policy priorities themselves differ, but in terms of the, uh, the overall approach, in terms of the level of detail, in terms of the purpose and the nature of these letters, uh, he says that they are largely similar to the other letters that he has seen. So I, I take the point that some governments may have uh, come into it with the, with the view that these should be released, uh, but I simply say that if, you if you're looking at whether this is going to undermine the ability of cabinets to do their job, these letters in their form, nature, and substance are very similar to ones that have been disclosed and have not had that impact. I guess I worry that that argument really is relying on form rather than substance. The fact that it's called a mandate letter doesn't mean it's the same in kind as the mandate letters that are disclosed to the public. And if we kind of, you say they're new, well, it's maybe new to put them in the form of a letter that's called a mandate letter, but aren't we really just talking about the communication by the Premier to a minister about priorities that the, the, the the Premier would like the Minister to focus on and ultimately bring any of the necessary issues to Cabinet, and that is not new. I, I, I'm having some difficulty with your idea that all, all documents called a mandate letter are necessarily the same and are something brand new that, hasn't, that has no relationship to Cabinet privilege, and that's just not so. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm relying on the record that was before the IPC and the findings he made. On the record before him, um, mandate letters and that terminology, it follows the facts that I, I told before you, whether there's other types of letters that were exchanged before then, it's not, it's not in, the, in the record before but it's, us. It's on the public record, and I'm going to take traditional notice of it, that the first Prime Minister of Canada who, who handed out publicly something called mandate letters was the current Prime Minister. Every other Prime Minister before that sent communications to his ministers, probably reaching back to Pierre Le Trudeau. I'm pretty confident Mr. the elder Mr. Trudeau would have sent mandate letters. And, and so this Prime Minister decided he was going to make them public, and he used them for a certain public relations purpose, which is entirely legitimate. But what Premier Ford did was for another purpose. He wanted to organize his government internally and direct them towards certain purposes. That's not the same as making a public statement, which is what is done with mandate letters in other jurisdictions. I'm in, I'm in no position to quibble with you on the history, um, but what I will say is that whether, uh, whether this was a long-standing practice or a recent one, the analysis that the IPC did in terms of assessing whether their disclosure would allow would beat the accurate inferences test was a fair one. Um, and on behalf of the CBC, I would urge this court to uphold the decision as reasonable on that basis. And I will now turn the floor over to my friends from yep. the IPC. Thank you. May it please the court, 
The IPC submits that the applicable standard of review in this appeal is reasonableness. My uh, colleague, Ms. Chen, will make submissions on the application of that standard. Uh, the IPC submits a standard as reasonableness because the question under Section 12 is ultimately one of statutor statutory interpretation of his home statute in light of the purpose of the Act and the exemption. Sir, you heard our questions uh, to your colleague this morning about uh, Vavlov and the fact that uh, about the correctness of standard of review. Uh, you know that in Vavilov, we spoke about questions of central importance. Uh, we also uh, spoke about constitutional matters. So given the constitutional dimension of what is at stake here, and given the importance of the question, uh, what do you have to say on the possibility of applying a correctness standard of review? Well, uh, as I understand, the court said in Vavilov, that uh, con the constitutional questions with which it was concerned uh, are ones concerning the division of powers, um, the uh, relationship between the legislature uh, and other branches of government, uh, uh, questions that arise under the Charter of Rights and Freedoms. Uh, the, 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 the question in this case, uh, while it, uh, it is informed certainly uh, uh, to some extent, that is the purpose of the of the provision is informed to some extent uh, by the common law and, and constitutional conventions. It is it is at the end of the day not uh, a, a, a question of simply uh, looking to to the constitution or looking to those conventions in order to decide the issue. Uh, uh, and nor is it a case involving a, a privilege in, in the nature of. Uh, solicitor-client privilege. Uh, uh, the court will know that in Kerry, um, uh, it said that the public interest in non-disclosure of a cabinet document is not a crown privilege. So uh, uh, while it has certainly has those kinds of, of, uh, of uh, parameters, uh, I would submit that it is the, the question arising here is neither of a constitutional nature per se, nor uh, a, 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 a question of central importance. Mr. Chalice, I think it's fair to say, as you put it very fairly, that section 12.1 is broader than, it deals with other matters beyond cabinet privilege. But is it also fair to say that to the extent the IPC uh, got the scope, the legal scope of cabinet privilege wrong, not just unreasonable, but wrong, that that would also, that would infect the decision on that aspect that is dealt with in section 12.1. Because Mr. Safiani took us to paragraphs 86 and 87 of the IPC's decision, talking about Babcock and the scope of the cabinet privilege was considered, wasn't disregarded. So I'm just wondering how one can square those two propositions. On the one hand saying it's it's centrally concerned with cabinet privilege, but you, you, you're entitled to be wrong on that in uh, interpreting section 12.1. Well, uh, at the end of the day, the IPC is required to interpret the words of the statute. The IPC in this case certainly, and I think uh, unquestionably, 
uh, took into account what the purpose was, uh, looked at the words, the substance of deliberations, um, and, uh, and at the end of the day had to make a judgment call on what is, what is the scope of those words. Uh, the, certainly the, the, the scope of those words uh, don't mirror Babcock, uh, but they, uh, uh, but there's, uh, they have to be given meaning, and the meaning uh, is is not it does not extend to protecting uh, any and all cabinet records. If that were the case, presumably, the as my uh, friend suggested. Uh, the, the records could have been excluded from the act entirely, or it could have said uh, they could have used the, the words uh, protect uh, cabinet privilege. The legislature chose not to do so and chose to use what I would submit are confining words uh, in the nature of the substance of deliberations. Is it, is it your position that if the uh you know, decision is found to be unreasonable that in light of Avalov, the appropriate remedy is to remand the issue to the IPC to redetermine in accordance with the court's decision? Uh, yes, that would be in the normal course. Uh, I'm going to turn the podium over to my friend, Ms. Chen, to deal with, the, uh, with how the standard should be applied. Thank you. Good morning, Justices. The Attorney General we heard this morning when speaking about Vavlov, and I did hear, I think, my friend initially concede that the standard to be applied to the order was reasonableness, although after some discussion with some of the panel members may have changed that position. But nonetheless, the Attorney General made a submission in its factum to this court for a more robust form of reasonableness review. And I just wanted to make quickly the points that Vavilov confirmed that reasonableness review remains a robust form of review, but this does not amount to a new or less deferential standard than should be applied to review, applied by reviewing courts throughout, and has, um, as the majority in Vavilov explicitly explained, their approach in the majority was not fundamentally dissimilar from that of their colleagues, Justice Isabella and Karakatsanis, which considered the principles of judicial review developed over the past 40 years, including that... When, when you look at the majority in Vavilov, we said that it is different, that when you apply the reasonableness standard, it, it must be robust, which may not have been the case, the case before. The discussion of being more robust appeared in, for example, paragraph 13 of Vavilov, where Vavilov says, reasonableness, quote, remains a robust form of review, end quote, which in my mind implies that it hasn't fundamentally changed. And as I stated, the majority in Vavilov at paragraph, what, at paragraph 77, which is in our case book, our condensed book at C44, also talks about how the, the approach isn't fundamentally dissimilar. They're still looking for reasonableness in both the reasoning of the decision maker and also in terms of the outcome. However, the deferential standards and principles that emanated from this court and other courts throughout the country over the past 40 years continue to apply, such as judicial restraint, respecting expertise, starting with the decision itself, and not engaging in a, in a standard of correctness in disguise, 
and focusing on whether or not the party who's actually challenging the decision has actually established that it's unreasonable. And applying the reasonableness standard also requires the consideration of the context in which the decision was made. And in this particular case, the contextual elements that are relevant are the history of the proceedings, the evidence and arguments presented by the parties, the jurisprudence of the decision maker, and the concessions made by the party during the proceeding before the IPC. I would also note that even if a court... Conspicuous by its absence in your list is any consideration of the scope of uh, the convention relating to cabinet confidences. Well, as I, 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 that strikes me as remarkably instructive. Well, as my friend Mr. Safayani spoke to the court, our view is that there is consideration of the, of the scope that you're speaking of, Justice Rowe, and that was uh, reflected both um, reflected in the order's reasons with respect to that issue. I don't wish to veer into the merits, but I understand what you're, what you're asking, Justice Rowe. And I'd also note that even if there was a particular interpretation that a court would decide needs to have the, the exception to the reasonableness standard and that correctness would apply, that with respect to factual findings and weighing of evidence, there has been explicit recognition by the courts, and in, including in Vavilov, that these exercises of an administrative decision maker's duty deserve significant deference. And my friend, Mr. Safiani, spoke this, um, this morning about the nature of this particular appeal before the IPC and the issue of sufficiency of evidence. And that was something that was recognized by both courts below, um, by the majority in the Ontario Court of Appeal and the unanimous court in the divisional court, that the sufficiency of evidence was a key component of looking at the reasonableness of this particular decision. Thank you very much. Iris Fisher. Thank you, Chief Justice, Justices. The CCLA intervenes in this appeal to support a principled approach to the interpretation of Section 12.1 of FIPA, one that accords with the purpose of FIPA and with the purpose of the Cabinet Secrecy Convention from which Section 12.1 arose. Today, I'll make three brief submissions. First, Section 12.1 should be interpreted in light of the Cabinet Secrecy Convention. It didn't arise in a vacuum. Rather, it's pretty clear that it was intended to be compatible with the Secrecy Convention. That convention, that tradition, is described in the Williams Report as protecting an environment in which alternatives can be more vigorously debated, allowing ministers to express their frank opinions. As a result, the convention offers a touchstone upon which to interpret 12 sub 1. Secondly, there is a distinction between cabinet secrets that reveal the personal views of ministers expressed in deliberations, either directly or by inference, and those that don't. And I submit FIPA is alive to that distinction. Professor Campagnolo refers to these as core and non-core secrets, respectively. The Cabinet Secrecy Convention is primarily meant to protect core secrets from public disclosure, and that comes from Nicholas Dombrin. He says it protects the views and opinions of ministers, not the substance of the matters deliberated or decided. Professor Campagnolo also refers to protection for core secrets as the heart of what the convention is intended to protect. And Canadian courts have recognized that distinction as well. The Supreme Court of British Columbia, for example, affirmed that there is a difference between documents that contain information that may have been presented or discussed at cabinet and documents that provide a record of who said what around the cabinet table. And that's in my condensed book at tab five. 
While this case was not in the, con in the context of an FOI statute, I suggest it is nonetheless relevant in showing how the convention has been interpreted, which is important to interpreting Section 12.1. The convention is not absolute protection. It's not described in the same terms as solicitor-client privilege, which is described as nearly absolute. The appellant has suggested that cases such as this should be disregarded because the common law balance in determining public interest immunity is not applicable. But a similar balance does apply here, and not just in Section 23. FIPA balances the public's right to access government information with the need for limited and specific exemptions only where necessary. And that, along with the words of the section themselves, has to inform the analysis. This court has also recognized the primary purpose of the convention as protecting the candid views of ministers in cases from Smallwood to Babcock to BC Provincial Judges Association. The legislature's use of substance of deliberations should be understood as referring to core secrets, who said what around the cabinet table, including by inference. By contrast, federal statutes broadly protect confidences of the King's Privy Council, a choice that Ontario could have made but did not. Finally, my third point, the scope of Section 12.1 should not be expanded. While the reference to substance of deliberations reflects the Cabinet Secrecy Convention and protects core secrets, the legislature also chose to extend the exemption to other specifically defined categories in, in subparagraphs A to F. The fact that the legislature listed categories of documents that may contain core secrets in some cases and may contain non-core secrets in others indicates that the expansive approach to interpreting Section 12 is the right approach. It's also the narrower and more specific approach, which aligns with FIPA's overall purpose of providing information to the public. Taking all this together, we suggest that a principled approach to determining whether a cabinet record should be disclosed under 12.1 involves two questions. First, does the requested record reveal the personal views of a minister expressed in deliberations, either directly or by inference? In other words, does it reveal core secrets? If yes, then it must be withheld. Second, if the record does not reveal the substance of deliberations, does it nevertheless fall within the specific categories of documents in ADF? In other words, if it doesn't reveal core secrets and may only contain non-core secrets, should it still be exempt from disclosure because it falls in the enumerated list? This suggested approach is, I submit, clear, well-defined, accords with the convention, and aligns with FIPA's purpose that any exemptions should be necessary, limited, and specific. Thank you. Thank you. Sean Hearn. Thank you. Uh, first, it is important to recognize that provisions like Section 12 of the Ontario Act do protect wide swaths of cabinet information, deliberations, and submissions. It's very difficult for requesters to get information relating to cabinet business or any government records where Section 12 or its equivalent provisions in other provinces is invoked. And some of the discussion this morning made it sound like the gates have been flung open by this legislation that was enacted 30 years ago. And that's just not the case. And the many cases from the IPCs that are before you demonstrate that. I don't think it's a question of whether the legislation flung open the gates. It's a question of whether the IPC flung open the gate. I understand that, that this is specific to the mandate letters, but I think that you'll find the analysis in the IPC's uh, decision here is fairly consistent with 
analyses that it has uh, engaged in prior and, uh, and elsewhere in the country. Uh, my second point is with respect to the standard of review and the exceptions in Vavilov, one important difference from cases with some constitutional dimensions that may invite a standard of correctness is that the province here is competent to modify this statute to more robustly protect cabinet privilege. That is distinct from a judgment of this court, for example, on the scope of solicitor client privilege or a division of uh, powers decision of this court, which would likely be beyond provincial competence. And Justice Lauer's comments on this distinction in relation to standard of review in his paragraph 107, where he writes, constitutional conventions are not law beyond the legislature's reach. My third point relates to the larger administrative context of access requests and IPC decisions. The cabinet exemption test in Ontario is well established with three decades of decision making by the independent officer of the legislature who is tasked with interpreting and implementing the act. The dissenting opinion from the Court of Appeal, uh, with great respect, re reads as if the Williams Commission report was released only a few years ago rather than in 1980. But in the context of there now being many, many years of requests for records, of positions taken, and of IPC decision-making on the cabinet exemption, we effectively have a dialogue between the IPC, the legislature, and the executive. And that context of dialogue, I submit, is relevant to the analysis here. If a government wishes to expand the scope of the cabinet exemption from how it is currently operating as adjudicated by the IPC, it can do that by introducing legislation that more broadly protects cabinet privilege. That may have political consequences that the government will weigh against its perceived needs for increased secrecy or confidentiality. But that dynamic is appropriate because it preserves the political tensions that gave rise to this legislation in the first place. And that point also links to paragraph 131 in Vavilov, which directs the court to look to longstanding practices or established internal decisions as important indicia of reasonableness. In paragraph two of its factum, the appellant here introduces this appeal as the first opportunity for this court to address the scope of the cabinet exemption in a provincial freedom of information statute. And that language reminds of the pre-Vavilov jurisprudence where the court would, this court would routinely establish the correct interpretations of legislation administered by tribunal decisions, decision makers. But post-Vavilov, that is no longer the role of the courts if we're uh, um, building on a reasonableness analysis um, outside of the narrow exceptions that Vavilov identifies. More than one interpretation is permitted, and the court's role is now reduced to ensuring that the various interpretations are within the range of reasonableness. My final uh, observation relates to the drawing of inferences. In this case, the Attorney General asked the IPC to draw inferences from a redacted agenda and from the mandate letters themselves to establish that the mandate letters were covered by the Section 12 exemption. Relying on inferences is, of course, acceptable, but it comes with a risk that the decision maker will not agree with the breadth of the inferences proposed. From a requester's perspective, direct evidence is preferable because drawing inferences from documents or information that the requester cannot see is procedurally less transparent. On judicial review and appeal, a government may choose to advocate for even stronger inferences to be drawn. 
from the documents, and all the requester can do is rely on the findings of fact by the IPC and hope that those findings hold. So if this court supports the IPC's decision that the evidence in this case was insufficient, it will serve as a cautionary example and encourage direct evidence in future cases, which we submit will in turn benefit the public's engagement with the access to information process. Thank you very much. Jessica Orkin. Good afternoon. Thank you. Um, I'll be speaking to, I'm sorry, I'm getting an echo from my colleague. I'll be speaking to uh, the, com I'd like to speak to a question that had been asked uh, this morning by several uh, members of the bench about the common law uh, of cabinet confidence and the relationship that this court uh, ought to look to in, in interpreting the statutory uh, exemption in relation to a, that constitutional convention. Now, we say that FIPA necessarily structures the common law and that we cannot ignore the statutory text, while of course the constitutional convention must be borne in mind. It's important to recognize that we have very different regimes across this country relating to freedom of information statutes as to how they deal with the common law cabinet confidence protection broadly. In some uh, uh, some jurisdictions, there is a requirement of certification. In other jurisdictions, this is a mandatory provision. In still others, it's discretionary. And the way it has been described by those legislatures also, also differs substantially. I think we need to begin with uh, recognizing the shift that Justice Rowe spoke of at the very beginning of this hearing this morning, that at the start, going back prior to freedom of information uh, statutes, there was no presumption of access to information held by governments. We have moved to a presumption of access subject to exemptions. And those exemptions, as described in, in the freedom of information statute in Ontario, are required to be necessary, limited, and specific. And the, statute, the, the legislature has chosen in Ontario not to simply refer to the common law of cabinet confidence, as they could have done, and as, for example, was done in section 19 in reference to solicitor-client privilege. There's been no effort to describe that further by the legislator. In relation to cabinet confidence, particular terms have been chosen. And I think that that is a, uh, an engagement with the case law as it existed in the 80s in relation to what cabinet confidence at common law was. The contemporary uh, common law relating to cabinet documents were that there was a public interest balancing to be assessed by the court in terms of uh, release. And in defining the term substance of deliberations, which the legislature chose, that is uh, not a term that I can find anywhere in the case law in relation to the common law of cabinet confidence. It's a term that the legislature has chosen to use and which I would submit that this court must give meaning to in relation, of course, to the background of cabinet confidence as a common law concept. What about paragraph 67 of Provincial Court Judges Association where Justice Karakatsanis says the executive too benefits from a degree of protection against undue interference. Deliberations among ministers of the Crown are protected by the Constitutional Convention. And then she goes on to repeat that language about the, uh, the confidentiality convention affords the executive public interest immunity over deliberations among the ministers of the Crown. Isn't that really pretty much what we have in Section 12.1? 
I think we do, Justice Jamal, in the sense that the word deliberations is, of course, used. And deliberations is a concept that we see as, as animating the common law uh, of cabinet confidence, the protection of that sphere of confidentiality for deliberations of cabinet. But we have a slightly different phrase in Section 12.1. We have substance of deliberations. And uh, as was noted earlier, we have the word deliberations in Section 12.1a. So substance of deliberations is a statutory concept that's been included here. And I, I would submit this court has to give it meaning that it is not automatically the meaning that we take from the common law of cabinet confidence, that the, that the statutory provision itself has uh, its own boundaries that have been set, which are different than how they have been set perhaps by the common law. So is it narrower? Is it narrower than the common law? I think that the substance of deliberations does set boundaries as to uh, what will be protected, which may differ from the common law, yes. And certain aspects of what we see in A through, I'm, I'm forgetting how many lettered provisions there are, are broader than the common law. And it may be that the substance of deliberations in the opening words provision is narrower in some respects. Um, that's the nature of the choice being made by the legislator to not just adopt uh, the word co uh, cabinet confidences, as they could have done, and as, for example, they've done in relation to solicitor-client privilege, but instead to describe, using particular words and a lengthy provision, what kind of protection um, is required. And in, in relation to evidence, we, we have a structure uh, that is required in regimes that require certification, where a certification of, of that, that the uh, matter is a cabinet confidence is required often from a very senior member, uh, either a, a minister of the crown or from the clerk of the Privy Council in the federal system, um, very senior uh, civil servants providing that certification. And this court's case law describes the, the content of that certification and the obligation upon the party providing that certification in terms of what are appropriate considerations and what are inappropriate considerations. I don't know that, I, I would submit that what is being required in terms of evidence by the IPC does not go significantly beyond that in relation to the particular uh, statutory provisions that we have in Section 12. It is a requirement to provide a linkage to the substance of deliberations in relation to the record before, uh, that is, over which exemption is being sought. And that, that requirement of certification exists in some regimes. In, uh, in this regime, because it is a mandatory uh, exemption, it's simply a showing that it fits within the scope that the legislature has defined. And as I said, the legislature has described that in a particular way. It is not infinitely elastic. It doesn't necessarily correspond to the full breadth of the common law. And it is not enough in the face I, I don't, of... I don't want to dance on the head of a pin, but this is a conceptual point that I think I need to make. The uh, constitutional conventions do not arise from common law, just in the way the parliamentary privilege does not arise from common law. Parliamentary privilege arises from the operation of legislative institutions. The conventions are practices of the executive, principally, which have basically been followed sufficiently uh, assiduously that they are now in effect rules in the nature of conventions. What the law does is not create these, it recognizes them 
and gives them practical effect. Now, you may say, well, what's your point, Judge? But we're speaking here as almost as if the convention is a, is a creation of the common law, which it seems to me it, it simply is not. We recognize the scope, perhaps, and the content of it in order to fulfill our role as judges, for example, whether evidence will be uh, received in a, in a contract dispute or something. But we don't make constitutional conventions. We don't create parliamentary privilege. Of, of course, Your Honor, you, you, you find the constitutional convention as it exists and uh, explain it perhaps to the rest of us in, in the judgment so that we can understand its existence. Um, nevertheless, uh, there has been a substantial evolution, if we look at, at Cary in Ontario, as to the nature of the immunity that is recognized and protected by the courts and uh, the manner in which that immunity is then treated by freedom of information statutes across this country. It is very different at the federal level as, it, uh, as compared to Ontario and quite different from one province to another. Those differences uh, and the statutory terms within which, as to how those legislatures have chosen to describe what they are protecting, in my submission, is of relevance to the assessment here. We cannot just go to the Constitutional Convention as it was described pre-carry in Ontario to say, you know, it is a, it is a vast public interest immunity um, with, with, without limits, or then say, well, then it is subject in some context to public interest balancing, but we're not talking about public interest balancing because we're in this a freedom of information statute. Where th those limits that exist in those other contexts exist in the words of the statute here and that's what we have to look to and substance of deliberations which i would submit is what the ipc was measuring it the evidence in front of it against that term has to be given meaning okay and so, I so can you help cannot... us give us give it meaning because justice karakatan is in provincial court judges association paragraph 98 says the common law protects the confidentiality of cabinet deliberations through the doctrine of public interest immunity. Parliament or a legislature may limit or do away with public interest immunity provided it, it clearly expresses its intention to do so. So any derogation from the common law as is generally accepted needs to be expressed. It's not going to be implied. So all I've heard you say is that the word substance somehow limits, uh, derogates from uh, the common law protection to be more precise in light of Justice Rowe's comment. So what is it about the word substance that derogates and how does it derogate? How does it limit it beyond the general use of the word deliberations of cabinet? I think that there is a requirement of linkage on the facts of the evidence of the party seeking the exemption. And we have findings of fact here that those linkages, that requirement of showing that uh, the, the letter was tied to deliberations and would reveal them in that way. That is the nature of the substance of deliberations and that linkage must be shown. And I, would, I can only point to the record and to the findings of fact of the IPC that it was not. Thank you very much. Any reply?
Thank you. I have two points to make, um, just as a one um, is with respect to the CCLA's uh, position that the scope of substance of deliberations in Section 12.1 of the Act should be limited to records reflecting core secrets, which, um, as she um, set out, um, and I believe my friend uh, also set out from the CBC, which has been described as the views and opinions of ministers. It's our position that such an interpretation is inconsistent with the text context purpose of Section 12. One, and should not be adopted by this court. Further, um, Professor Campagnol, in his article, which we have in tabs, I believe it's 39, uh, our uh, condensed book, maybe it's 29, it is, I would, I recommend it to you. Um, he does not assert that the primary purpose of the Cabinet Secrecy Convention is the protection of core secrets. Rather, he explicitly states that the convention protects the decision-making process and the views exchanged by ministers. Though in his view, core secrets are more sensitive and therefore receives a higher degree of protection. The, and, and he also adds that the efficiency rationale is not valid justification for protecting core secrets once a final decision has been made. He certainly does not espouse for uh, not protecting um, non-core secrets. And just as another point of clarification. Doesn't, doesn't Professor Campagnolo writing with Mel Cap say that uh, mandate letters, quote, inherently contain cabinet secrets? Yes, he does. That's correct. Um, and the other um, point that I wanted to make um, is a point of clarification. I believe my friend from the CBC talked about Justice Lauer's um, statement with respect to on the facts of this case being a one-off. And I just wanted to clarify um, that um, in paragraph 100 of his uh, decision, he states, my Second observation is that the ultimate decision forcing disclosure of the mandate letters in this case is likely to be a one-off, not on the facts. He then goes out to say, because the Premier's response in the future will predictably take one of three forms, to draft mandate letters for public consumption, uh, to, as others have done, to tie the mandate letters even more closely to the cabinet decision-making process, like Justice Karakostanis had pointed out, um, and uh, and uh, or give up on drafting mandate letters altogether. And as I adopt the submissions of my friend from the AG Alberta, that would be very unfortunate turn of events that would not support the purpose of, uh, of the cabinet records exemption and it would um, paralyze the efficient and effective functioning of cabinet governments. And those are my submissions, thank you. Thank you very much. Thank you all, Council, for your submissions. The Court will take the case under advisement. Thank you.